The U.S. economy grew at a healthy clip in the final months of last year. The GDP rose 2.9 percent. Even so, forecasters expect slower growth this year as the Federal Reserve cracks down on inflation. Our story is coming up on this Thursday, January 26th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, China is slowly opening its borders and has lifted COVID controls, but a full-blown economic recovery may take some time. Highly sought-after American and German tanks will soon be heading to Ukraine. They need more quantity. Basically, they're talking about 300. Uh, they might get 200 with, uh, with luck. We'll have more on the importance of tanks on the front line of war. And we remember Lloyd Morissette, the co-creator of one of the most beloved TV programs in history, Sesame Street. It's 4.01. News headlines are next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. Five former Memphis police officers in Tennessee are jailed on a range of charges connected to the beating death of a 29-year-old black motorist. Shelby County District Attorney Steve Mulroy says the officers, all of whom are also black, are charged with second-degree murder, kidnapping, and a litany of other crimes against Tyree Nichols during a traffic stop on January 7th. While each of the five individuals played a different role in the incident in question, the actions of all of them resulted in the death of Tyree Nichols, and they are all responsible. Roy says body cam footage of Nichols' encounter with the officers is expected to be released tomorrow night. The former officers were fired last week. Authorities expressed shock over what the body cam footage revealed. FBI Director Christopher Wray says, unfortunately, dealing with mishandling of classified documents has become, quote, regular part of the FBI's counterintelligence program for a number of years. And Pierce Deepa Shivaram has details. With document discoveries mounting up, the head of the FBI finds himself fielding reporters' questions about whether the system of accounting for classified information in the executive branch is broken. People need to be uh, conscious of the rules regarding classified information and appropriate handling of them. It's, those rules are there for a reason. Christopher Ray would not comment on the specifics of any ongoing investigations. The Justice Department has already appointed special counsels to investigate the documents found in the homes of President Biden and former President Trump. Earlier this week, classified documents were also found in the home of former Vice President Mike Pence. Deepa Shivaram, NPR News, Washington. The United States is imposing visa bans on more than 530 members of the Russian military and stepping up pressure on a private militia known as the Wagner Group. NPR's Michelle Kellerman reports the Biden administration is looking for ways to cut funding for Wagner, which has mercenaries in Africa and in Ukraine. The U.S. describes the Wagner Group as a transnational criminal organization, and a top State Department official, Victoria Nuland, tells a Senate panel that the U.S. is imposing sanctions on those doing business with Wagner and looking for ways to cut off its funding streams, including in African gold mines. They have access to gold mines in Mali and in Central African Republic. They are seeking more of that, and that directly funds the combat that they are engaged in in Ukraine. So we're working on some of those measures. Newland says she's also worried about Wagner making inroads in Burkina Faso, and she says she's been warning that country's president not to let the Russian mercenaries in. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department. At last check on Wall Street, the Dow Jones Industrial Average was up 205 points or more than half percent at 33,949. This 
is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Lisa Mullins. Governor Maura Healy says she plans to appoint a new MBTA general manager in a matter of weeks, not months. Her comments today come as T-riders struggle with delays, reduced service levels, and frequent weekend shutdowns on parts of the orange, green, and red lines. This morning in Newton, Healy told statewide business leaders that hiring a new GM is a top priority so that, quote, these things don't keep happening, or these things stop happening. She's using a transit search firm to look for a new leader. The previous GM, Steve Poftek, stepped down earlier this month at the end of Governor Charlie Baker's term. Healy also plans to hire a new safety chief at the T during her first two months in office. The head of the Massachusetts Medical Society wants doctors to take on a larger role to prevent gun violence in the state. The organization that represents physicians and medical students has just formed a firearm safety and gun violence prevention advisory group. Here's WBR's Fausto Menard. The Medical Society cites statistics that show an average of 241 people in Massachusetts are killed and more than 400 others are injured by guns every year. Society President Dr. Ted Kalianos calls it a public health issue that doctors are uniquely qualified to address. Physicians deal with the results of gun violence every day. And to that end, that is most certainly in our lane. Kalianos wants the advisory group to develop standardized questions that doctors can ask their patients. You know, are the guns safely locked away? Are there children in the home? Are there people in the home that might be more susceptible to gun injury? Caliano says he also expects the group to develop advocacy initiatives around gun safety. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Fausto Menard. If it's a sport, there's a good chance you'll be able to bet on it in Massachusetts next week, maybe even if it's not a sport. Massachusetts Gaming Commission this week approved sports wagering on a list of different types of competitions. They include rugby, professional darts, and competitive eating. Gamblers will also be allowed to place bets on things such as the Academy Awards and the Super Bowl MVP. Chess, cornhole, and many Olympic events failed to make the cut. Go figure. In-person betting in Massachusetts begins at 10 a.m. Tuesday. Safe bet will have clouds into the evening, some clearing by morning, about 29 for a low. Tomorrow, sunshine at long last, temperatures in the upper 30s. And then the sun should return Saturday, about 45 degrees. Gray skies for Sunday, strong winds again, highs close to 50. 43 degrees now in the Boston area at 406. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Annie E. Casey Foundation, using research and evidence to develop solutions that help families and communities create a brighter future for young people. More information is available at aecf.org. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Here is the good news from the latest report card on the U.S. economy. It ended last year in better shape than many people expected, and that is largely because people kept spending money in spite of rising prices. But the not-so-good news is this. Forecasters say that resilience is not likely to last. Inflation is starting to take a toll on people's spending habits, and the Federal Reserve's efforts to fight inflation are putting a big dent in the housing market. NPR's Scott Horsley is here to explain all. Hey, Scott. Hi, Mary Louise. Start with what we know for sure. What does the new GDP report tell us about the economic growth that already happened in the final three months of 2022? Yeah, the economy grew at an annual pace of 2.9% in the fourth quarter. That is down a little bit from the previous three months, but it's still pretty good. In fact, it's well above the average growth rate we saw during the decade-long expansion leading up to the pandemic. 
It's also a big improvement from the first half of last year when you might remember the economy actually shrank. Yeah. Uh, Mark Zandi, who's the chief economist at Moody's Analytics, says after that tough start to 2022, the economy found its footing in the second half of the year. And we actually ended the year with an economy about 1% larger than it was 12 months earlier. Weak in the grand scheme of things, but pretty darn good in the context of a pretty tough year with the Russian invasion of Ukraine spiking energy prices, record gasoline prices in the middle of the year, and of course the Fed jacking up interest rates very aggressively. The Federal Reserve has raised interest rates seven times in the last 10 months as it tries to curb inflation. And that effort is working. Inflation is coming down. But, of course, those higher borrowing costs are also likely to produce slower economic growth this coming year. And are we already seeing signs of that? You can definitely see it in the housing market. Home sales and new home construction have dropped off sharply as a result of higher mortgage rates. Uh, Housing was a big drag on GDP at the end of last year. Consumer spending, which is the biggest driver of the economy, has held up relatively well. But you are starting to see some cracks there as well. You know, for a while, people were able to shrug off higher prices and maintain their spending by dipping into savings or leaning more heavily on their credit cards. But you start to see a real slowdown at the end of last year. Uh, Nikki Moore works for an insurance company in Florida. She and her husband have pretty good incomes. But she says once they pay their basic bills every month, there's just less money left over for little luxuries. Our electric bill, holy Moses, things like that we have to budget for. Whereas before, I was like, okay, I paid the electric bill and we have some money left over. I take the kids to the movies or we go to McDonald's or something like that. But I'm like, yeah, that money's being eaten up just for the basic needs. As a result, people are starting to spend a little less freely. Consumer spending was pretty robust in October, but it started to lose steam in November and December. Okay, so crystal ball moment. What does all that tell us about what we may be in store for this year? We are likely to see a further slowdown in growth. A lot of forecasters worry the economy could slip into recession. Zandi thinks we will narrowly avoid that, and the economy will keep growing just very slowly. Uh, Some would call that a soft landing, although doesn't like that phrase. This isn't going to be soft. You know, we may land without a recession. I think that's more than likely, but it's going to feel very, very uncomfortable. Not a recession. We're not going backwards, but we're not going anywhere fast. Whether we slide into recession or not, 2023 looks like a challenging year for the economy. On the plus side, we do have a very strong job market. Unemployment's at a half century low, so we'll see how long that lasts. Thank you, Scott. You're welcome. And Pierre Scott Horsley. The Biden administration is proposing two major changes to the 2030 census. If approved, these changes could transform how Latinos and people of Middle Eastern or North African descent are counted in statistics across the U.S. NPR's Hansi Wong is here to explain. Hey, Hansi. Hey, Ari. Seems like just yesterday we were talking about the 2020 census. What are these proposed changes for 2030? We are talking about two new checkboxes on census forms as well as other federal surveys, one for Middle Eastern or North African and another box for Hispanic or Latino. And they would appear alongside boxes for other categories like American Indian or Alaska Native, Asian, Black, Pacific Islander and white. And you would still be able to check off as many boxes as you identify with. But what would be new is that all of those boxes would be under a new kind of question. If you remember the 2020 form, what that looked like, there were two separate questions about race and ethnicity. These new check boxes would be under a combined question about a person's race or ethnicity. Explain the impact of that. What kind of a difference could it make in how Latinos and people of Middle Eastern or North African descent are counted in this country? 
Well, many Latinos have had a hard time answering census and federal survey questions about their race that don't include a checkbox for Hispanic or Latino. That's because the federal government recognizes Latino as ethnicity that can be of any race. But research by the Census Bureau shows that asking about race or ethnicity in one combined question on forms, that could help Latinos more accurately report their identities. And as for adding a Middle Eastern or North African checkbox, that's been uh, there's been a decades long campaign for for a checkbox like that by advocates for Arab Americans and other MENA groups, because right now the U.S. government officially categorizes people with origins in places like Lebanon, Iran and Egypt as white. And research has shown a lot of people with MENA origins in the U.S. don't see themselves as white. You know, I talked to Maya Berry, executive director of the Arab American Institute and one of the leading advocates for a MENA checkbox. And I asked why having a checkbox on a federal survey or a census form is such a big deal. Let's listen to we what she said. We will, for the first time ever, be able to get to a place of understanding where our community is, better meet its needs. And we're talking about things from, you know, basic healthcare needs, health research on the community, English as a second language program, where our schools go in, political representation. It's extraordinary how much the decennial census and the data collected from it impacts individual lives. Okay, so clearly a lot at stake here. Hansi, are there also broader implications that could come along with these changes? We know these proposals are all part of potential revisions to federal data standards that have not been updated since 1997. That's more than a quarter century ago. And the way the country thinks about the social constructs that are race and ethnicity have certainly changed since then. So any approved changes to those standards could really reset the national conversation about race. And what are the next steps for these proposals to become reality? Right now, these are, again, just early proposals from a group of career civil servants, and the White House Office of Management and Budget is asking for feedback from members of the public to send in that feedback by mid-April, they say, and a final decision on these proposals by OMB, Office of Management and Budget, is expected by summer 2024. NPR's Hansi Lo Wong. Thanks a lot. You're welcome, Ari. Imagine you buy the car of your dreams. And then somebody else buys it for 20% less. How would you feel? Well, you might feel like many Tesla buyers right now. Though, as NPR's Camila Dominowski reports, what Tesla loses from frustrated owners is outweighed by what it stands to gain from lowered prices. When Brian Levine, a physician in Tucson, ordered a Tesla Model Y in August, he knew it was going to cost him 70 grand. That's expensive, but the price was the price, right? What can you do? A carton of eggs is $7, and I don't know, yeah, that feels pretty expensive, but what are you going to do? Still got to make an omelet. It turns out there was something Levine could have done to get a much cheaper Model Y. He could have waited. Unlike most automakers, Tesla sets prices directly on its website, and it changes them whenever it wants. Earlier this month, the price of a new Model Y dropped by $13,000. The, you know, reptilian brain um, part of, wow, that stinks. This just would have been a much better purchase, you know, had I waited a couple months. He's trying to be philosophical about it and doing better than I would. You know, that, that's fine. Not everyone's going to get every amazing deal or whatever. Still, he's peeved that his car lost so much value overnight. But someone in the family was happy. After his dad heard about the price cuts, he ordered a Model 3. And of course, that's the point of cutting prices. It drives up sales. Tesla CEO Elon Musk talked to investors about the price cuts this week. Just a vast number of people that want to buy a Tesla car 
but can't afford it. And and so these price changes really make a difference um, for the average consumer. It's true that whether buyers are looking to slow climate change or save on gas money, sky-high prices can give them pause. But there's another reason for Tesla to cut prices. Actually, more like half a dozen reasons. One from Volkswagen, one from Ford, one from Kia, one from Hyundai, one from Chevy. I love this place. That is really nice. At the DC Auto Show last week, Xavion Butler and Frank Smart agreed electric vehicles are the future and that prices need to come down. They take it over. That's for sure. Get on board or get left behind. (laughs) Everybody's got to be able to afford them too, so they got to make them more affordable. But it wasn't a Tesla they were looking at. It was the upcoming Chevy Blazer electric vehicle. And when I mentioned Tesla's price cuts, Butler pointed to that shiny red SUV in front of us. Tesla did just cut its prices. Yeah, because everybody else came out. They have no choice. If you're the only person in the game, you make the price. And Tesla was the only one pretty much in the game. Not anymore. Tesla is still at the top of the EV game by a long shot, but it knows it has to work harder to maintain its advantage. And one big question now is whether all these other companies will cut their prices too. After all, that's how this normally goes. Now, Tesla has never been much for normal. All electric startup with no dealerships, no ads, none of that is typical for the auto industry. But starting a price war? That's actually very normal. It's sort of a, you know, a tale as old as time. You want market share, you're just going to increase your production, drop the prices. That's Jessica Caldwell from the auto site Edmunds. As soon as Tesla announced the price cut, the percentage of shoppers who researched Tesla instead of other brands on Edmunds more than doubled. Price cuts work. That's why discounts happen. It's just another step on the road for Tesla becoming a mainstream automaker and dealing with mainstream automaker problems. Tesla has transformed the auto industry, but in the process, maybe it's starting to look a little more like a normal automaker. Camila Dominoski, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Coming up on All Things Considered, the importance of tanks on the battlefield. And in about 15 minutes, why Adam Schiff wants a seat in the U.S. Senate. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.com. On Wall Street, stocks picked up territory today. The Dow rose about six-tenths of a percent, 206 points, to end the day at 33,949. S&P rose more than one percent to close at 4060, and the Nasdaq gained one and three-quarters percent to finish the day at 11,512. A Boston wholesale bakery has been cited for violating workers' rights. Attorney General Andrea Campbell says Dutch-made bakery and firms that provide employees to it failed to pay minimum wages and overtime to dozens of workers. The citation calls for the companies to pay more than $400,000 in restitution and fines. We've reached out to Dutch Made Bakery for comment. Marketplace has business news at 6.30. It is now 4.19. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Comcast Business, providing small businesses with cybersecurity and fiber solutions at speeds up to 10 gigs. Comcast Business, powering possibilities. 
Follow the news this evening on WBUR. Just tap to listen on the WBUR mobile app while you're working out or heading home from work. Clouds should break up a little bit tonight. Winds will be strong, some as high as 33 miles an hour. Tomorrow, sunshine at long last, highs in the upper 30s. Sun should return on Saturday, up around 45 degrees. And then gray skies back for Sunday, strong winds again, highs close to 50. 43 degrees now in the Boston area. This is 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BritBox, now streaming Stonehouse, starring Matthew McFadden, based on the rise and fall of British politician John Stonehouse, who faked his own death. Available at BritBox.com NPR. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief, Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. With word this week that German and American tanks are headed to Ukraine, we wanted to take a moment to consider the role that tanks have played on the battlefields of Europe, the extent to which they have or have not been a game changer. Go back to World War I. That is when tanks first appeared. The idea was that an armored all-terrain vehicle could break the stalemate of trench warfare. While militaries have been trying to improve on tanks' design and effectiveness ever since. Historian Antony Bivor has written about the tank and personally knows his way around one from his time as an officer in the British Army. Welcome. Thank you very much. So paint us a picture of the situation that the first early tanks were designed for back in the First World War. The massacre of soldiers pouring out of trenches and going across no man's land was so horrific that everybody was trying to think of an alternative. And so that's where the idea of an armoured tank emerged. And it was because it looked almost like a water tank, but bolted together as a project. And Churchill, um, working then in the government, put as much pressure as he could to help develop it. And the British uh, were probably just about the first, really, to get the tank going. And uh, there they had these monsters with... uh, the tracks on the outside, uh, rather than sheltered under armor or anything like that. And this was uh, when, 1916 that they first? That's right. Okay. Yes, yes, indeed. Ah. All right. I'm going to fast forward you over a lot of twists and turns in the development right up to World War II. It was the Brits who first developed tanks, but by World War II, it was Germany that had leapt ahead. Is that right, in terms of integrating tanks in their combat plans? Uh, it was, in fact, the Soviet Union. I mean, oh, the okay. um, Stalin went in for a massive uh, program. And, of course, actually, the um, Red Army had the largest tank force in the world. But they were uh, not nearly as well-trained as the German tank crews. And, in fact, um, the German tanks were probably inferior both to the British and the French tanks in 1940. And yet, because of speed and above all, because of their determination to break through, not worry about the flanks and just keep going, they were far more devastating in their tactics. I am curious, since you just told me it was Russia that was at the front of the pack in terms of what they were able to do with the tank in the Second World War. What happened? Because it, it cannot be said that their tank usage in the current conflict in Ukraine has been impressive. Uh, it has been um, very unimpressive and quite astonishing in the way that they have repeated the mistakes of the Second World War, all of their worst mistakes, uh, and also sending them straight down a road. 
uh, where you could block off by shooting up one or two of them. You could then basically stop the whole column and then pick them off one by one. The Ukrainians um, did that and using those uh, uh, British N-law uh, anti-tank uh, weapons uh, very effectively, absolutely massacred them. So Ukraine, of course, already has tanks in this fight. What do you expect the impact of this new of the new ones of the American Abrams and the German Leopards to be in the war in Ukraine? Well, the, uh, the the whole advantage of the leopard is that so many other countries in Europe have got the leopard, and therefore uh, there is less problem over spare parts, ammunition resupply, and all the rest of it. Uh, and of course, it's a very, very good tank. But I mean, frankly, there isn't the number. So they need more quantity for this to be a game changer. They need more quantity. Basically, they're talking about 300. They might get 200 with, uh, with luck, which would be sort of roughly the equivalent of a proper armored division. What about timing? Uh, it, there's, there are many questions about how long it's going to take for these tanks to actually get there. Well, the trouble is many of them are, and especially the ones coming from Germany, um, have basically been sort of sitting, sitting around, in many cases, waiting for proper repairs. And this is really one of the problems. Europe uh, especially has been, I'm afraid, sheltering under the American umbrella and has simply allowed its military situation uh, to deteriorate uh, drastically over the years. So if I'm hearing you correctly, you do not sound overwhelmingly convinced that in the current quantity and on the current timeline that the announcements of influx of tanks this week is going to be a game changer in Ukraine. It could be. It all depends on timing. And even a certain number will certainly help because uh, what they're expecting and why Zelensky is so desperate to have the tanks is they know perfectly well that Putin is going to launch a uh, major spring offensive as soon as the ground dries. And uh, for that, they need to be ready. But there is a fundamental paradox here. And this comes back to the beginning of the war when the killing, the destruction of all of the Russian tanks uh, as they advanced on Kiev uh, right at the beginning uh, made everybody, every military commentator at the time uh, say, right, well, this proves that, you know, the era of the tank is over. But uh, we are seeing, as I say, uh, should we say a slight uh, U-turn, if you like, in attitudes to the tank in warfare. Historian Antony Bivor. He is the author, among other books, of Russia, Revolution and Civil War, 1917 to 1921. Sir Antony, thank you. Thanks very much. Lloyd Morissette died earlier this week at the age of 93. Whether or not you recognize his name, you'll almost certainly recognize the television program he helped create. NPR's Corey Turner has this remembrance of the man behind Sesame Street. One morning in the mid-1960s, Lloyd Morissette found his young daughter, Sarah, sitting in front of the television. She was waiting for her show to come on, just watching the TV station identification signal. Morissette had trained as an educator and a psychologist, and he wondered, if TV is that riveting, could it possibly be used for good to educate young children? In a 2019 interview with the public radio program On Point, Morissette said that question was on his mind. Because too many children entered school three months behind and by third grade were a year behind. Especially low-income children and children of color who often didn't have access to high-quality preschool or even kindergarten. Morissette wondered, could TV teach? 
1966, he found himself at a dinner party and asked that same question of a TV producer there named Joan Gans Cooney. Intrigued, she came up with a proposal for a show. And in 1968, they co-founded what would become known as Sesame Workshop. The following year, in November of 1969, Sesame Street premiered with Kermit, Big Bird, Bert, and Ernie. Hey, Bert, you ought to take a bath. It would cheer you up. Then you wouldn't be such a grouch. I don't need cheering up. I, I, I can tell you don't. Uh, but everybody in the world ought to take a bath. Then they'd be happy and, hey, you out there in TV land, everybody wash. The genius of Sesame Street, as imagined in part by Lloyd Morissette, is that all that joyfulness hides its thoughtfulness. We had a deliberately developed curriculum designed to help children that watch the show succeed in school. The program was designed by educators and child psychologists with a big chunk of its budget devoted not just to Muppets, but to research. Last fall, Sesame Street kicked off its 53rd season. In a statement, co-creator Joan Gans Cooney said without Lloyd Morissette, there would be no Sesame Street. Corey Turner, NPR News. This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Thanks so much for being with us this afternoon. Coming up on WBUR in about 15 minutes, an adolescent friendship encounters challenges in the film Close, Belgium's entry into the best international film sweepstakes at the Oscars. Bob Andela's report is coming up. Temperatures continue to head downward, should fall to about 29 overnight tonight. Tomorrow, the sun beats back the clouds, mainly sunny through the day, highs up around 40. Then for Saturday, sunny again, rising to the mid-40s. Sunday, could be even milder, almost reaching 50, but it should be a lot grayer with mainly cloudy skies for the second half of the week. There's an evolutionary purpose for anxiety preparing us for an uncertain future. We'll hear about why anxiety is actually good for you, even though it feels pretty bad. Coming up at 7 o'clock on On Point here at 90.9 WBUR. It's 4.30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Zevin Asset Management, building socially responsible investment portfolios that help create a healthy planet. Learn how to have impact at Zevin.com. When you return something, it doesn't just go right back on the shelf, you know. It's not one size fits all for every product. Everything you touch has a different story. It's almost like a 31 flavors that returns. I'm Kai Rizdal, Retail Return Remix, next time on Marketplace. Tonight at 6.30 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. The U.S. economy expanded by a nearly 3% annual pace from October through December. Despite the pressure of high interest rates and widespread fears of a looming recession, consumer spending continued to increase, but at a slower pace compared to late summer and fall. Meanwhile, President Biden is trying to sharpen the contrast between Democrats and Republicans and people's perception of which party will handle the economy better. Look, uh, we're moving in the right direction. Now we've got to protect those gains. We've got to protect those gains that our policies have generated. Protect them from the MAGA Republicans in the House of Representatives who are threatening to destroy this progress. Look, you know, this ain't your father's Republican Party. This is a different breed of cat, as they say. In last year's midterm elections, Republicans took control of the House by a slim margin and have so far 
refused to raise the U.S. debt ceiling, which could push the government into default. Investigators are still searching for a motive in the mass shooting that occurred in a Monterey Park dance studio over the weekend here in Southern California. NPR's Liz Baker has this update from the L.A. County Sheriff. Sheriff Robert Luna says the gunman had not attended the dance studio in at least five years and is not believed to have had a romantic connection to any of the victims. He acknowledged but would not confirm rumors that the suspect's ex-wife was at the Monterey Park studio that night. The shooter's motorcycle was found one block from the studio, possibly a backup getaway vehicle. And the gun used in the shooting, a modified, unregistered semi-automatic pistol, was purchased in Monterey Park in 1999, nearly a decade after the suspect's arrest for unlawful possession of a firearm. The legality of that gun, whether the shooting was planned, and why, all questions added to a long list as investigators and community members struggle to make sense of a senseless act. Liz Baker, NPR News. Stocks finished higher across the board on Wall Street today. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. The MBTA's Orange Line will be shut down between Ruggles and North Station in Boston the next two weekends because of demolition of the government's center garage. The shutdown will also allow the T to perform track work in that stretch. The same part of the Orange Line will be shut down the weekend of February 18th. Portions of the red and green lines will be closed on the same weekends, or I should say on some weekends in February, for repairs and to accommodate the demolition work at the government center garage. A program that lets students take free college courses in high school is expanding in Boston. As WBR's Kara Young reports, beginning this fall, Fenway High School will let students continue their college work for an extra year. Typically, the early college program at Fenway allows students to take a mix of high school courses and college classes at UMass Boston through their senior year. The pilot program adds a year 13. City leaders say the goal is to make higher education more affordable. Jeff Walker, the Fenway High School principal, also hopes the extra student support from the program will improve college completion rates. The theory in action is to kind of blur the lines between high school and college so that they can start to experience university in a supportive setting. District leaders hope to enroll at least a dozen students this year and expand it to other schools if it's successful. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Carrie Young. Massachusetts and other five New England states are asking for federal help to improve the region's access to clean, renewable energy. The coalition is seeking federal money to upgrade the region's power grid so it can better access energy from wind farms planned for the region. The group says the improvements will lower costs, reduce the region's reliance on imported fossil fuels, and improve winter reliability. The forecast is coming up. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by CB Team in Lexington. Traditional as well as accelerated cognitive behavioral therapy for kids and adults with OCD and anxiety. CBTeam.org. 43 degrees now in the Boston area. Some of the clouds from today should break up tonight. Strong winds around still, lows about 29 degrees. Tomorrow, mighty fine sunshine up around 40. Sunday, the sunshine takes the day off. Clouds move in, temperatures move up to the high 40s. Should be a dry weekend ahead, except for the chance of a shower on Sunday. Again, 43 degrees now in Boston. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Easy Cater. Committed to helping companies, from nonprofits to the Fortune 500, find food for meetings and team lunches, tax exempt ordering, and delivery nationwide at easycater.com. From Procter and Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, 
a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Something unusual is happening in the 2024 California Senate race. Even though sitting Senator Dianne Feinstein has not announced whether she'll run for re-election, two Democrats have already launched campaigns to succeed her. Earlier this month, we spoke with Congresswoman Katie Porter. I think it's time for a change. I think now, given the challenges that we face in this country, more than ever, California needs a warrior in Washington. And today, Congressman Adam Schiff announced he's also running for the seat. He is known nationally for leading the first impeachment of President Trump. Congressman Schiff, welcome back to All Things Considered. Thank you. It's great to be with you. So explain what's going on here. You said that you checked in with Senator Feinstein before you announced your campaign, but she has said she's not prepared to say whether she'll retire or run for re-election. Do you expect you'll be running against a sitting senator of your own party? I'm going to let Senator Feinstein uh, make her announcement when when she decides to do so. Uh, I have a lot of respect for her and more than respect, uh, admiration and affection for her. We've worked together closely for years uh, but I went to see with her, see her, sat down with her. Um, she was certainly um, more than gracious uh, when I expressed my interest in announcing and, and did not try to discourage me in any way. Um, I think this is a critical time for the country when our democracy is deeply at risk, when the economy is simply not working for millions of Americans who see their quality of life at risk and their kids' future in doubt and, and has left all too many vulnerable to a demagogue who promises that he alone can fix it. So I'm, I think it's the right time for me to run and to champion these issues in the U.S. Senate. The threat to democracy seems central to your message. In the video announcing your campaign, you have clips of Donald Trump, Kevin McCarthy, and other prominent Republicans attacking you. You describe impeaching Trump as the biggest job of your life. Is the message that voters who are looking for bipartisanship and consensus building should look elsewhere? No, not at all. I think the message is that our democracy is still deeply at risk. Uh, and it's at risk in significant part because it hasn't produced an economy that is working uh, for millions of people. Uh, Explain how really the threats to, to democracy, which I think everyone would agree are important, uh, cause, in your view, uh, the economic problems. Uh, you know, I think the combination of uh, glo a globalized economy and automation uh, have produced tremendous uh, insecurity in our economy. Uh, a middle class that is at risk of falling out, uh, working families trying harder than ever to become part of the middle class, uh, folks struggling, working full-time and struggling to have a roof over their head. Uh, and if a democracy isn't delivering an economy that works for everyone, then people start to consider a demagogue who comes along and promises that he alone can fix it. These two issues, to me, are inextricably entwined uh, and we need to address both. They're both uh, existential to the future of the country. California right now is dealing with record flooding, two mass shootings in a week, deep-seated challenges that feel distant from Washington. How do you balance those essential, urgent issues with the federal government work that you are best known for? You know, this is exactly what I've done as a House member. Uh, and my constituents will tell you I've been dogged in the pursuit of the interests of my constituents bringing resources back to my district, uh, being there to face the challenges my constituents have in terms of uh, finding good jobs, being able to afford good health care. Uh, these are the struggles that I want to uh, take up for all Californians. Uh, people can learn more about my campaign at adamschiff.com. 
But this is this is the challenge of our times, and I've been proud to be in the center of this struggle, uh, not just in the impeachment, but in the January 6th committee, uh, holding those who would tear down our, our democracy accountable, uh, but also being an everyday champion for the economic interests of my constituents uh, and their their efforts to provide for their families. California is a very diverse state, and to point out the obvious, you're a white man. Do you think it's important that California voters send someone to the Senate who reflects the state's demographics? I fully trust the voters of California to decide what's most important to them at this moment. I think they'll look at our qualifications, our leadership, our track record, uh, and they'll consider race and gender. I think all those factors will be considered by voters, uh, and I trust they'll make the right decision about what the state needs at this pivotal moment in our history. You know, there's no easy way to ask this question, but many news organizations have reported that Senator Feinstein is experiencing cognitive decline. At 89, she is the oldest member of the Senate. If you do run against her, is that something you plan to talk about? Uh, You know, I want to show uh, Senator Feinstein the respect I think she has earned from all of us. And, And so she'll make her announcement in her time about her plans uh, what I want to put forward is is my vision for the state of California and the willingness to fight uh, just as hard as I have in the House uh, to ensure that our economy can produce good jobs, that people have livable wages, uh, that they can uh, access good, affordable health care. Uh, this is what I want to fight for, and, and I'm confident Senator Feinstein will make an announcement about what she thinks is best in terms of her future. Democratic Congressman Adam Schiff, he's the latest to announce he's running for the California Senate seat held by Senator Dianne Feinstein. Thank you very much. Thank you. The Belgian film Close is the story of a teen friendship that took home the Grand Prix at the Cannes Film Festival last year. Critic Bob Mondello says he is not surprised to see it nominated for Best International Feature at this year's Academy Awards. Rambunctious, grinning, skinny 13-year-olds Leo and Raimi have been pals forever, it seems, as they enjoy their last carefree summer after middle school, inventing war stories, racing through acres of dahlias in the commercial flower fields owned by Leo's parents, using each other as pillows while sunning in the grass. They are so close, they might almost be brothers. You see it in Leo's adoring gaze as Raimi practices oboe, and in Raimi's easy laugh when Leo shows him a terrible portrait he's sketched. (laughs) If there's more to their feelings for each other, they don't seem to have considered it until they start classes at a new school, and some girls note their closeness and ask if they're together. A couple. Why would you ask that, wonders Leo. We're just pals. But something about the raising of the question spooks him. He starts talking sports rather than music, hanging out with members of the hockey team, sitting a little further apart when he's with Raimi, who notes the change and goes quiet until one day in the schoolyard with shoves and tears. He's not quiet. Belgian writer-director Lucas Don't makes the social forces here pervasive, but subtle. No overt bullying or homophobia, just internalized pressures on still-developing psyches. The boys, especially Aidan Dambreen, a remarkable discovery who plays Leo, are flummoxed by this new social landscape where intimacy that's always been okay suddenly isn't, where Leo can hug his older brother at school, say, but not his best friend, at least not without disapproving looks. The boy's slow separation is heartbreaking, and then a sudden horrific tragedy makes it so much worse. 
Filmmaker Don't is now two for two. His first film, Girl, about a trans teenager studying to be a ballerina, also caused a commotion at Cannes and also proved the director could get delicately nuanced performances from young actors. Close uses the nuance to uncover broader social implications in an adolescent tale of friendship and loss so quietly observed it could almost be a documentary. As for the emotional impact, with tears flowing freely at the screening I attended, were hardened critic types able to stay dry-eyed? Not even close. I'm Bob Mandela. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. After three years of repeated COVID lockdowns, China's officials say the country is back in business. But is it? NPR's Emily Fang asks, how quickly can China bounce back? Earlier this month, hundreds of workers in China revolted. They marched through streets and threw chairs and boxes at police. They were demanding their jobs back because they worked at a factory making rapid antigen tests. And now that China has lifted nearly all of its COVID controls, they were out of a job. NPR confirmed the protest happened with two workers who participated. The protest was notable because it highlighted a strange contradiction. China's COVID controls killed local economies, but it also created a lucrative health industry. And now, with control suddenly gone, China will have to pivot again to welcoming foreign investment and getting its lockdown-battered citizens to spend more. Understandably, there's skepticism. Trust but verify, right? That's Nargiza Salajanova, a China director at the research firm Rhodium Group. She says investors are skittish. There's been too many sudden policy reversals and earlier this month, GDP figures that raised eyebrows. Markets were actually like stock indices were falling given inconsistencies in official indicators. So the market didn't believe the numbers. That's not very encouraging. The first step is to actually start releasing accurate numbers so investors can trust you again. Adding to China's challenges are bigger global economic uncertainties, just as China finally reopens its borders. Bert Hoffman explains. He was former China director for the World Bank and is now a professor at the National University of Singapore. Remember in 2020, China was up and running with manufacturing again. Nobody else was. So exports really drove the recovery in China, the first recovery in China. This time around, it's different. The world economy is not doing so well, and therefore export demand will be lackluster at best. So Chinese officials are looking for ways to boost consumption right at home. Nick Morrow, a senior analyst at the research firm The Economist Intelligence Unit, is watching consumption closely as well. It really has to come from the consumer um, in terms of, you know, are people going to be willing to, you know, dine out? Are they willing to spend on entertainment and leisure goods? Are they, you know, willing to, you know, return to China's malls and markets and kind of lend support to the retail environment? Yes, Morrow says. Consumers plowed their somewhat diminished incomes into savings during the pandemic, and so now they've got a bit more money to spend. But they're also risk-averse. So he says the consumer recovery likely won't get China immediately back to pre-pandemic levels. And of course, COVID-19 still remains a variable. It's a potential X factor that could continue to jeopardize China's recovery. And part of the equation for how long that immunity lasts is how quickly 
the virus is evolving. This is Dr. Lauren Ansel Myers, a professor at the Center for Pandemic Decision Science at the University of Texas. You know, what is the next variant that's going to emerge and spread over the world? How similar does it look to, you know, the current spreading variants and, and the vaccines that they use to, you know, vaccinate people? China's public health authorities say 80% of the country, that's more than 1.1 billion people, have already gotten COVID in this most recent surge. Such a rapid and wide-scale level of infection means a decent amount of natural immunity, but the economy is far from being immune to further shocks. Emily Fang, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Coming up in about 15 minutes, infighting at the Republican National Committee could complicate the election of a new committee chair tomorrow. Updates on the story ahead on WBUR. And coming up next, Japanese musician Ruichi Sakamoto has released a collection of compositions recorded in his native Tokyo during his battle with stage four cancer. That's coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Vertex working for people living with sickle cell and genetic kidney diseases, cystic fibrosis, and more. Careers in Boston, Cambridge, and Providence at vrtx.com. 43 degrees now in the Boston area. It's down from about 50 or was earlier today. Should fall all the way to 29 overnight tonight. Should be partly cloudy overnight. And then tomorrow, the sun beats back the clouds, mainly sunny through the day. Highs up around 40. For Saturday, sunshine again, rising to the mid-40s. Sunday should be even milder, almost reaching 50 degrees. But it should be a lot grayer, mainly cloudy skies for the second half of the week. This is WBUR. It's 449. WBUR supporters include Eversource. Eversource knows the role energy plays in life for you and your family. And because of that understanding, in times like these, they offer plans that can help this winter. To see if you qualify, you can visit Eversource.com. And Stanhope Framers, Back Bay in Somerville, celebrating 50 years of handmade museum-quality frames through sustainable practices. StanhopeFramers.com. Hi, I'm Lauren Summer. I cover climate change at NPR, so I'm particularly interested in the surge of interest in electric cars. If your next car is going to be electric, be sure to donate your old car to this station. You'll be doing your part to lower your carbon footprint, and we'll turn your old car into more coverage of everything that matters to you. Here's how. Learn more at WBUR.org cars. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Here's some pop music trivia for you. When producer Quincy Jones was making Michael Jackson's album Thriller, he happened to hear a song by the Japanese band Yellow Magic Orchestra. Quincy Jones played it for Michael Jackson. The King of Pop liked it, wrote some new lyrics, and recorded it. Because of legal disputes, Jackson's version of Behind the Mask never made it onto Thriller, though it was eventually released a year after Jackson's death. 
We tell you this because one of the co-founders of Yellow Magic Orchestra went on to become a widely respected artist across genres, from film scores to techno and hip-hop. Ryuichi Sakamoto is both an Oscar and Grammy-winning composer and a highly sought-after collaborator. Sakamoto recently released his 15th solo album. He made it while undergoing treatment for cancer. He was not able to record an interview, so instead we talked to some of the artists he has worked with about his career. My name is Alejandro González Iñárritu. I vividly recall the emotional experience I had when I first uh, listened to Ryuchi Sakamoto. I was in a car, traffic, traffic, held in Mexico City <laughs> with a friend of mine, and uh, we put a pirate Japanese cassette at that time. This was 1983. I heard uh, some piano notes and I felt as if the fingers were penetrating my brain and giving me a cranial cosmic massage. And it was uh, Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence. drops, he can create a huge emotion. Ryuichi Sakamoto studied classical music in Japan before making a name for himself in pop and electronic music. Hip-hop producer Flying Lotus says one of the first pieces that turned him on to Sakamoto is called Rain. It's still the beautiful and classical vibe. It, it still had this kind of hip-hop sensibility to it. want to talk about his history and, and what he's done in the past, there's a lot of stuff from like Thousand Knives. That was like some really early stuff, but it, you play it up against some today and it, you know, still sounds like the future. to L.A. to work with me for a little bit. It was very magical having him here. He had this kind of childlike curiosity about all the potential for sounds that we could come up with. You know, he would look around and tap on surfaces to get some tones out of them or you know, tinker around with my ceiling fan above us so we could <laughs> hear what that sounds like. And, he found the beauty in all the little things. When did I first come across Sakamoto's music? Yuji's music, it's so timeless. It feels like you've almost always known it. There's such deep listening in the way that he works. My name is Hildur Guðnadóttir and I am a composer and musician. He 
invited me to work with him on the soundtrack for The Revenant. It was very interesting to interpret how he was explaining his music. Like it wasn't so much with, with words, but it was with the gestures of his uh, wrists and of his eyelids and how he physically embodied his music. It's a film that is about loneliness, silence, and space, you know, through this character that is left out in the middle of nowhere. Here's Alejandro Inarritu again, the director of The Revenant. So I wanted to have somebody who was able to understand silence. And I think the greatest musicians ever understand that silence is the source of music. And I think that's, that's Ryuchi. This is from Sakamoto's new album, 12, released on his 71st birthday. He made it while undergoing treatment for cancer. I was very touched by this album because I can hear so much in these 12 tracks of this current state of him and this kind of sensibility, the fragileness, the weakness. My name is Carsten Nikolai. I recording under the name of Alvanoto, and I met Luigi many years ago. Uh, probably we recorded eight albums together. It feels strong and fragile in the same moment. It has this incredible beauty of not being too complex. Ryuichi Sakamoto recorded this album in March of 2021, not long after an operation and long stay in the hospital. In his artist statement, he writes, I had no intention of composing something. I just wanted to be showered in sound. I had a feeling that it'd have a small healing effect on my damaged body and soul. Sakamoto continues, from now on, until my body gives out, I'll probably continue to keep this kind of diary. This segment on Ryoichi Sakamoto was produced by Elizabeth Blair, edited by Rose Friedman, and mixed by Isabella Gomez Sarmiento. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fisher Investments. As a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their clients' best interest. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. And from Heather Sturt Haga and Paul G. Haga, supporting African Wildlife Foundation, working to ensure wildlife and wild lands thrive in modern Africa. Learn more at awf.org. And from the estate of Joan B. Kroc, whose bequest serves as an enduring investment in the future of public radio, and seeks to help NPR produce programming that meets the highest standards of public service in journalism and cultural expression.
This is NPR. And this is 90.9 WBUR. 43 degrees now in the Boston area. Temperatures continue to head downward, should fall to about 29 degrees overnight tonight. Partly cloudy skies tonight, a strong wind blowing as well. And for tomorrow, mainly sunny throughout the day. Highs up around 40. For Saturday, we should see the sunshine again, rising to the mid-40s. Sunday could be even milder, maybe reaching 49 or 50 degrees, but a lot cloudier, mainly cloudy skies for the entire second half of the weekend. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Montgomery Carroll Group, guiding buyers and sellers in Brookline and Newton. More about Matt Montgomery, Lauren Carroll, and their team at mcgroupcompass.com. I'm midday host Jack Lepiars, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH-Brewster, and you can listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. An Israeli military raid on Palestinian refugee camp has left nine people dead. This was the single deadliest Israeli operation in the West Bank since the United Nations started tracking casualties. The raid increases the risk of a major flare-up in Israeli-Palestinian fighting. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Also coming up in Memphis, five black one-time police officers have been jailed and charged with murder in the beating death of black motorist Tyree Nichols. The police chief is calling the beating inhumane. Rising insecurity and economic uncertainty in Nigeria are increasingly having an impact on retirees' decisions not to go back home. There's no security. Some people build their house and finish everything. They can't live there. And ABC's Jimmy Kimmel is the longest-tenured host working in late-night TV. How's it lasted so long? Stay tuned. It's 5.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. Five police officers in Memphis, Tennessee, have been indicted on multiple charges stemming from the death of Tyree Nichols, a black motorist. Christopher Blank with member station WKNO reports Nichols died days after a confrontation with the officers during a traffic stop. A yet unreleased video purportedly shows five officers beating Tyree Nichols for three minutes after he fled on foot from a traffic stop for alleged reckless driving. He died three days later on January 10th. His family's attorneys say he was unarmed. Both state and federal investigations are ongoing, but this morning, all five former officers were charged with second-degree murder and other crimes. Police officials say internal investigations now have expanded to all of the city's specialized crime units. For NPR News, I'm Christopher Blank in Memphis. President Biden came out swinging today against congressional Republicans in his first major economic address of the year. Speaking to a group of union workers in Springfield, Virginia, Biden pledged to veto any legislation that threatens to sow chaos in the U.S. economy. They want to impose a 30 percent national sales tax on everything from food, clothing, school supplies, housing, cars, a whole deal, 30 percent. No, you think I'm joking. What I, if I did if they didn't see it, if, you didn't, if I didn't see it, I wouldn't believe it. I wouldn't believe it. And folks, the reason they want to do that, they want to eliminate the, 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 the income tax system. Because guess what? 
That's the only way that millionaires and billionaires have to pay any taxes. Biden says the latest report from the Commerce Department is proof that the economy is heading in the right direction. Gross domestic product increased at an annual rate of 2.9 percent in the fourth quarter of last year, down slightly from the previous quarter. The Biden administration is proposing the forms for the next census and federal surveys include new checkboxes for Latino and Middle Eastern or North African. NPR's Hansi Lowong reports a final decision is expected next year. Many Latinos have had a hard time answering census and federal survey questions about their race that do not include a checkbox for Hispanic or Latino. That's because the federal government recognizes Latino as an ethnicity. The Census Bureau's research shows a proposal to ask about race or ethnicity in one question, however, could allow Latinos to more accurately report their identities. That research also shows that adding a box for Middle Eastern or North African would better reflect how many people with origins in Lebanon, Iran, Egypt, and other countries in the MENA region see themselves. Currently, the U.S. government recognizes people of MENA descent as white. Anzi Luang, NPR News, Washington. At the close on Wall Street, the Dow was up 205 points. This is NPR News. In Washington. And this is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. New England states are taking steps to improve the region's power transmission infrastructure. That includes poles and wires that help electricity get to homes and businesses. Mara Hoplomazian reports. As New England works to transition to clean energy, its transmission and distribution systems will need an upgrade. Connecticut, Maine, Massachusetts, and Rhode Island have proposed a partnership centered around offshore wind with the support of Vermont and New Hampshire. The effort would identify projects needed to improve the grid and support the possibility of new offshore wind developments. The partnership could bring up to $250 million into the region to build out the transmission and distribution grids and help with energy storage projects. For the same funding opportunity, Vermont asked the federal government to support a proposed transmission line called the New England Clean Power Link, which would bring hydropower from Quebec to Vermont and the broader New England market. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Mara Hoplamazian. The Boston Symphony Orchestra has named an interim director for its Tanglewood Music Center in the Berkshires. The Music Center is an academy where emerging musicians train, study, and perform at the symphony's summer home. Ed Gozuleus is a longtime violist with the orchestra. He takes over for Ellen Heistein. She retired last summer after 25 years with the organization. And visitors to South Boston and the Seaport District should be aware of increased parking restrictions and street closures through Saturday. The Yankee Dental Congress is in town. It's built as the largest meeting of professional dental workers in New England, and it's expected to bring large crowds to the Boston Convention and Exhibition Center. Boston's Transportation Department is encouraging visitors in the area to walk, bike, or take public transit when possible. The calendar shows it's still wintertime, but the Red Sox want you to be thinking about spring. Tickets for opening day and all Sox home games through June 4th go on sale at 10 tomorrow morning. The Red Sox season opener is March 30th at Fenway Park against the Baltimore Orioles. There will also be a home game on Patriots Day in April when the Boston Marathon is run. 43 degrees in the Boston area now. Tonight should be windy and cold in the upper 20s. Tomorrow, the first full day of sunshine in a while. Highs about 40. Saturday should also be sunny. Highs in the mid-40s and then the upper 40s on Sunday, but lots of clouds through the day. This is WBUR. It's 506. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Katina Foundation, supporting the Asylum Seeker Advocacy Project, providing more than 100,000 asylum seekers in the U.S. with community and legal support. Learn more at asylum.news.
This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Ari Shapiro. A military raid in the occupied West Bank killed several Palestinians in the deadliest Israeli operation there in years. Palestinian officials say at least nine people were killed, including several militants, but also a woman in her 60s. This comes after months of other similar raids and battles with militant groups, often leading to civilian deaths. In response, the Palestinian Authority said it was cutting off the usual cooperation between its police and Israeli forces. NPR's Daniel Estrin has been covering this wave of violence. He's in Tel Aviv. Hi, Daniel. Hi, Ari. Describe where exactly this took place. This happened deep inside the Janine refugee camp. Uh, It's a crowded neighborhood of cement buildings, a hub for Palestinian militant groups. It's also where Palestinian-American journalist Shirin Abu Akleh was killed in an Israeli raid last year. And how exactly did this play out? What happened? Israeli troops came in undercover this morning. They say they were going after militants who were planning an imminent attack in Israel. Uh, The army says its troops came under fire and they opened fire and ended up killing at least six armed Palestinian men. Palestinian officials say a 61-year-old woman was also killed and dozens were wounded as well. Um, I spoke to a Palestinian paramedic who was on the scene, Khaled al-Ahmad, and here's what he said. He said it was a ghost town. It was a city of fear. It was a city of horror. It was a real, real war. He said he saw people on the ground with various kinds of wounds um, and that it took a while for Israel to even allow paramedics to access the site. And all in all, Ari, this was the single deadliest Israeli operation in the West Bank since the United Nations started tracking casualties in 2005. You've been covering the increasing violence in the West Bank for nearly a year. What is driving this? Well, last year there were Palestinian attacks on Israelis. And so Israel embarked on a campaign in the West Bank uh, nearly 10 months ago to arrest militants and to confiscate weapons. And this has been going on ever since. Almost every single day, uh, troops have entered Palestinian areas and killed Palestinians gunmen, but also children who throw stones at troops, and also uninvolved civilians like Shirin Abu Akla, the Palestinian-American journalist we mentioned. So where all of this is headed right now is unclear. Uh, Palestinian leaders have lost a ton of legitimacy among their own people, and so gunmen are filling the void in the West Bank. Now, uh, with today's raid, there is concern of more violence, maybe Palestinian militants responding with rockets from Gaza. And then you have a new far-right government in Israel, which wants a tougher line on Palestinians. You know, usually uh, there is ongoing communication between Israeli and Palestinian security forces to keep a lid on things in the West Bank, to keep the peace. Uh, But today, the Palestinian Authority announced it was suspending its cooperation with Israeli forces, which they have done also in the past. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is headed to the region. He'll be there early next week. How is the U.S. likely to address this? Well, we heard today from Assistant Secretary of State for Near East, Barbara Leaf, who says uh, U.S. officials have been working the phones with Israeli and Palestinian officials trying to de-escalate the situation. Uh, They don't want the Palestinians to end their security cooperation with Israeli security. And, you know, Secretary of State Blinken, his trip was planned in advance um, before what happened today. He was coming to reach agreements with Israel's new far-right government on things like what they're going to do in the West Bank with Jewish settlements. The Israeli government wants to expand settlements. The U.S. opposes that. But now, Ari, this has just become much more of an emergency situation for the U.S. That's NPR's Daniel Estrin in Tel Aviv. Thank you very much. You're welcome.
Now to a political battle playing out at a five-star hotel on the California coast. That is where all 168 members of the Republican National Committee have come together to vote on who will be the next RNC chair. The race has been dramatic. Two top contenders, both endorsed by former President Trump. Given the poor performance of a lot of Trump-backed candidates in last year's midterms, though, there is vitriol and concern over where party leadership goes from here. Well, Rachel Bade is in the thick of it. She is Politico's senior Washington correspondent and is covering the RNC meeting from Orange County, California. Hey there, Rachel. Hey, Mary Louise. All right, let's set the table. You have billed tomorrow's vote as the biggest moment yet in the 2024 election cycle. And I'll just set us up. It's current RNC chair, Ronna McDaniel. She's trying to win a fourth term. Um, but her top challenger, this is California attorney Harmeet Dillon, is not going down without a fight. So I want you to briefly introduce us to what we need to know about both of them in the context of this race. Start with Ronna McDaniel. So Ronna's considered the favorite right now, right after the midterm. She put out a list of 100 names of the RNC members who backed her saying, look, I have this lined up. I'm able to get this fourth term, even though she promised she would leave after three terms. But this race has really turned contentious because of two reasons. So first one is, of course, as you mentioned, Republicans having this terrible midterm performance. A lot of people are blaming her. Her take on this is that the work she did at the RNC, she, she's arguing, made it so the, the election wasn't as bad as it could have been. The second one is this concern about her being too tied to, to Donald Trump. He was the one who put her in the job in the first place. And so mm -hmm. some people want to put some distance between them. OK. Trump has also endorsed her top opponent, Harmeet Dillon. What should we know about her? Yeah. So as you mentioned, she's an attorney. She's a Fox News favorite on all the time. And uh, she's basically blamed Rana for these election losses, saying that Republicans aren't doing everything they can to turn out the votes. But you pointed out there's this inherent sort of contradiction here. And that is she's also very close with Trump. She represented him before the January 6th committee and has represented him on other legal issues. She's also surrounded herself with these sort of MAGA hardliners. Mm -hmm. So, you know, she's trying to say that she can distance herself from Trump. But at the same time, her top allies are some of his most, you know, true believer, hardcore people. So it's, it's a bizarre dynamic. And tell me the mood just as you walk around this hotel. How contentious has this back and forth gotten? Yeah, I mean, it's gotten pretty ugly. I will say, I mean, it's not like I've seen any fights happening here in the lobbies. You know, the members uh, will come out and they talk to reporters. We're not actually allowed backstage where they're doing sort of all these debates. But a lot of the contention actually has been happening sort of behind the scenes, sort of these whisper campaigns, uh, as you may say. So people are talking about some of the staffers that Harmeet Dillon wants to hire who have a lot of scandal in their past. But then at the other end, you know, Harmeet Dillon has alleged that Ronna McDaniel and her camp have tried to say she can't run the RNC because she comes from the Sikh religion. She's not uh, a Christian. And so Rana has pushed back and said, I would never do that as a Mormon. You know, I've dealt with religious bigotry. I definitely had nothing to do with that. We'll have to see if, you know, Harmeet Dillon is actually able to sort of capitalize on some of this. Her allies are telling me that they think they're only within 10 votes of actually uh, defeating uh, Ronna McDaniel. Yeah. So the vote is tomorrow. Ultimately, how big an impact will this vote have on the 2024 election? Like, how much does it matter who is the RNC chair? Well, I think the ironic thing about all of this is these two women, things are very contentious right now. But like we said, they're both close to Trump. And the big question right now, everybody seems to be asking is which one can be the most independent? I mean, I think people really want the RNC 
not to put their thumb on the scale for Donald Trump going into 2024. Republicans here, a lot of them will not say it on the record, but privately will say that he's bad for the party and they do not want him to be the nominee. So they want the person in this job to make sure that anyone else who's running gets a fair shake in the primary. And that's a big piece of this question right now is who's going to do that best. Rachel Bade of Politico speaking with us from the RNC meeting in Dana Point, California. Thank you. Good luck covering it all. Thank you so much. Authorities in Half Moon Bay, California, have identified those killed in the mass shooting there this week. They were seven men and women. All of them worked in the agricultural industry, many living far from the places they were raised in Asia or Latin America and far from family. From member station KQED, reporter Mari Bolaños has this profile of one victim. Marciano Martinez Jimenez was 50 years old and a godfather to Catalina Martinez's nieces and nephews. She stopped by the impromptu memorial in downtown Half Moon Bay. Just two years ago, they had the opportunity to spend Christmas together. She says they spent many unforgettable moments together. She knew his parents. Martinez Jimenez and Martinez were from the Pueblo Santiago Apostol in Oaxaca, Mexico. Martinez says it's hard for her to comprehend this tragedy in her community, let alone the death of someone she knew so closely. He was a very humble person, she says, very hardworking. He liked to help his community, whoever needed it. He was that kind of person. Martinez Jimenez lived just north of Half Moon Bay, where he rented a room in a trailer park. His neighbor, Olga Velasquez, first met him in 2014 when they both attended English classes at San Mateo Community College. Una persona muy inteligente, muy cariñoso. He was a very smart person, very caring, she says. She has good memories of him as a neighbor and a classmate. She considered him a brother. Velasquez says they'd talk often over the fence they shared, both offering a listening ear and advice. When they were in school, she says he told her he wanted to work hard to send money back home to his parents in Oaxaca. He's always been hardworking and a good neighbor. Francisca Sanchez says he passed by her place every night while walking his dog. They bonded over their pets. He'd walk by and say, oh, your dog is always there. He's so cute, she says. She'd respond, yes, have a good night. Sanchez and Martinez Jimenez were also from the same pueblo in Oaxaca. They're very proud of that, she says. They work hard to get ahead. So when a tragedy like this happens, they're left feeling speechless. Later tonight, the trailer park community where Marciano Martinez Jimenez lived plans to hold a special vigil to remember their neighbor and friend. For NPR News, I'm Madi Bolaños in Half Moon Bay, California. You're listening to All Things Considered. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up, we remember a biologist who saved a rare fish from extinction by walking through the desert at night with two buckets in his hands. That story is coming up in about six minutes. First, Jimmy Kimmel's staying power on late night TV. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software for technical computing and model-based design, accelerating the pace of discovery in engineering and science, MathWorks.com. Stocks picked up territory today. The Dow rose about six-tenths of a percent, 206 points, to end the day at 33,949. S&P rose more than one percent to close at 4060. The Nasdaq gained one and three-quarters percent to finish the day at 11,512. Details coming up on Marketplace at 630. Some good news on the job front in Massachusetts. The number of people who filed claims for unemployment fell last week by about 20 percent. There were nearly 7,000 new claims. The drop is in line with Nasdaq. National trends. Jobless claims across the U.S. are at their lowest level since last May, a sign of a tight labor market. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge Naturals with over 300 bulk items, including culinary spices, medicinal herbs, and household staples. CambridgeNaturals.com. Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org slash cars. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu says she wants to improve neighborhoods. Tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR, we take a walking tour of Mattapan to review some early plans. That story and much more tomorrow morning on WBUR. In the forecast, clouds from today should break up tonight, down around 29 degrees. Tomorrow, lots of sunshine, highs around 40. Sun's back for Saturday and then for Sunday. Looks like clouds move in, temperatures move up to about the high 40s. 43 degrees now in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Sony Pictures Classics, presenting Living, a new film directed by Oliver Hermanis, starring Bill Nye as a man who tries to turn his ordinary life into something wonderful, now playing select cities. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health, containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at AlignProbiotics.com. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Hard to believe, but the late-night show Jimmy Kimmel Live turns 20 years old today. It's being celebrated in a special primetime episode on ABC. NPR TV critic Eric Deggins visited Kimmel in Los Angeles to learn how he's lasted so long. Hey. How's it going, man? Hi. Walk into Jimmy Kimmel's cluttered office, and you'll see a space filled with a showbiz nerd's knickknacks, like a portrait of famed comic Don Rickles and framed graphics from David Letterman's show Late Night. So it's not surprising that a guy who grew up worshipping late-night TV legends resists the idea he's an institution himself, the longest-tenured late-night TV host currently on the air. The institution I admired was David Letterman. So, uh, yes, I will never compare myself favorably to Dave. It is interesting when people tell me, yeah, I've been watching since I was uh, eight. (laughs) From Hollywood, it's Jimmy Kimmel Live. Earlier in the day, Kimmel deftly hosted an episode featuring jokes about a recent loss by quarterback Tom Brady. Brady was reportedly so upset after the game, he ate a carb. Just one, but... But Kimmel almost quit this job late last year, hesitating before agreeing to stay on as host and executive producer for three more years. I was almost sure I was going to stop. I I was nearly positive because part of it is just OCD. Just 20 years sounds right. What drove him to nearly quit was the grind. 
working with writers and producers to create a nightly show filled with guest interviews, pre-taped comedy bits, and a long opening monologue requires lots of material. It's relentless. If you want to do a good job, you have to work all the time. You have to. You can't even watch television without thinking, is there something here that I can use on my show? Because great ideas are hard to come by. Kimmel is surrounded by friends and family. His wife, Molly McNearney, is co-head writer and an executive producer. His late uncle, Frank Potenza, a cousin and an aunt have appeared on camera. And there's his sidekick, a chubby, lovable teddy bear of a guy named Guillermo Rodriguez. Rodriguez was an actual security guard at the show's studio who started doing comedy bits on air in 2004, like offering John Oliver a shot of tequila backstage at the Emmy Awards. Were you like a spot of tea? Sorry, I just... <laughs> How do you say? <laughs> yeah, this is uh, English breakfast tequila, right? Yeah. Cheers. But does it bother Rodriguez that the show often minds humor from his weight, heavy accent, and drinking habits? It's comedy, so I laugh my way all the way to the bank. I did so many jobs. I did construction, I did gardening, I did painting. So this job, they make fun of me, I make fun of them, I'm having fun, they're having fun, and they pay me. Kimmel says keeping this family of collaborators employed was another reason he decided to keep doing the job. A lot of these people I won't see much if, if, um, if I stop doing the show or when I stop doing the show. And it all added up to stay. Even Kimmel wasn't expecting a 20-year tenure when Jimmy Kimmel Live debuted on January 26, 2003, preceded by this announcement from Nightline anchor Ted Koppel. There will be no special post-Super Bowl edition of Nightline tonight so that ABC can bring you the following piece of garbage. Welcome to Enjoy It While It Lasts, my new talk show. Uh... It's on. I mean, this is it. This is the real thing right here. Early on, the show struggled for guests and relevance as Kimmel developed a snarky, everyman style of comedy influenced by his early days as a radio DJ, including elaborate pranks and a long-running fake rivalry with movie star Matt Damon. Then, in April 2017, his son Billy was born with heart problems, and Kimmel teared up while talking about a proposal from then-President Donald Trump to cut billions from the National Institutes of Health. If your baby is going to die, and it doesn't have to, it, it shouldn't matter how much money you make. That, I think that's something that, whether you're a Republican or a Democrat or something else, we all agree on that, right? I mean, we do. Later that year, after he offered a similarly emotional take on gun control following a mass shooting in his Las Vegas hometown, perceptions about Kimmel changed. He was doing what his idols like Letterman had done before him, helping people make sense of a confusing world. A big part of what we do with this job is we put it in relatable terms. And I think it is always comforting to hear that somebody else is going through something that you're going through. Now he's preparing to host the Oscars for a third time, balancing work as a producer of other TV series with Jimmy Kimmel Live. Even as big names like Trevor Noah and James Corden leave the late night genre, Kimmel has faith it will stick around. He admits viewers today often watch parts of the shows online, which brings smaller ratings for the network, but he expects that'll be a problem mostly for whoever replaces him. And when will he eventually stop? As a sort of answer, Kimmel recalls a joke he used to warm up audiences that reliably got big laughs. Until it didn't. There was something about it that just stopped working. And, you know, you always have that fear, like, when does it stop working? It's gonna stop working eventually. I want to be ahead of that. I want to stop before it stops. Eric Deggins, NPR News.
A biologist who single-handedly saved a rare fish from extinction by lugging buckets across the desert has died. Edwin Phil Peaster spent his life working as a state fisheries biologist in California's deserts and eastern Sierra. As he describes in an oral history from UC Berkeley, it was August 18th, 1969, when his assistant burst into his office. And he said, Phil, we better get out there to fish slough. That pond is drying up. That pond was the last known refuge of the Owens pupfish. So they sped to the pond, a 15-minute drive he says they did in 10. After they'd loaded the fish into underwater cages for transport, Peaster sent the others to grab dinner. It was then he realized the fish were already dying. So he grabbed a couple buckets worth of fish and began walking to the truck. A quarter mile over pothole terrain, in the dark, a 30-pound sloshing bucket in each hand. Well, this was a, this was a traumatic thing, really, because I was keenly aware of the fact that these fish were nearly gone. And I had the only fish in these buckets. Mm-hmm. And if something had gone wrong, I and mean, these fish, the species would be extinct now. It's just that, that ragged edge of extinction. Philip Easter was an amazing force of nature. Michael Bogan is a biologist at the University of Arizona. He says Peaster knew the fight to conserve the environment was a multi-generational one, so he mentored others like Bogan to carry on those efforts. Bogan first reached out to him in college after writing a paper about Peaster's work. And my undergrad advisor said, well, why don't you just write to Phil? And I thought, well, that's crazy. Like, Phil's, you know, this famous guy. He's not going to respond to some, some random college student in California. But to my surprise, he did respond, and he said, oh, this is great to learn from you, and, and when you're in Bishop, you know, give me a call, and we'll, we'll go get a beer. <laughs> Vogan says Peaster's life also made clear the impact one person could have, whether literally saving pupfish from extinction with a couple of buckets or paving the way for a Supreme Court fight that would preserve the pupfish's right to live. Environmental writer Elizabeth Colbert says Peaster would often sum up his philosophy this way. People would always ask him, you know, when he was devoting his life to this task, what good are pupfish? And his response, which I think bears repeating, was always, what good are you? (laughs) Yeah, and I think that's really the heart of Phil wanting to get people to really give thought behind the tiny little things in our world that they thought weren't important. And, And what is your purpose? Right? If the pupfish don't matter, do you matter? Phil Peaster died last week. He was 94 years old. This is NPR News. You're listening to 90.9 WBUR. Thanks for being with us this afternoon. Coming up, India's government censors a new BBC documentary that crit- uh, critiques the prime minister. This story and FDA advisors debate a controversial proposal to update the COVID vaccines annually to target the strain that's most likely to hit each winter. These stories start in just about 20 minutes. Celtics return home to the Garden tonight to host the New York Knicks. Celtics hope to add to their seven-game home streak. It's uh, 7.30 start time tonight. And the Bruins are out on the road to take on the Tampa Bay Lightning. Face-off is at 7 o'clock. Partly cloudy tonight. Temperatures in the 20s. Tomorrow, sunshine at long last in the upper 30s. Sunshine should return on Saturday, about 45 degrees, and then clouds ahead for Sunday. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by UMass Chan Medical School. Proud to be named one of Boston Globe's top places to work. Learn more at umassmed.edu globe. In my job, balance is really important. I'm Aisha Roscoe, host of Weekend Edition. 
So when I look at my old minivan, I'm balancing on the one hand, new car payment, and on the other, driving around for another year with that smell of spilled milk in the back. Whenever the balance tips for your old car, give it a chance to do one more good deed. Donate it to this station and turn it into the programs we all love. Learn more at WBUR.org cars. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. Secretary of State Tony Blinken heads to the Middle East this weekend to talk about ways to preserve the possibility of a two-state solution to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. That trip was announced as the U.S. tried to ease tensions in the occupied West Bank. Here's NPR's Michelle Kellerman. The Palestinians are threatening to cut security cooperation with Israel following a deadly raid in Jenin. Assistant Secretary of State Barbara Leaf says she's been working the phones to try to de-escalate tensions and promote more coordination between Israeli and Palestinian forces. We understand there were civilian casualties, which is uh, quite regrettable. And then uh, obviously there is the potential for things to worsen in security terms, in terms of protests or any other kind of kinetic action. She says she will continue her outreach right up to the secretary's trip. Antony Blinken will be in Egypt over the weekend before going to Jerusalem and Ramallah. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department. The FBI has infiltrated and dismantled a top criminal ransomware group called Hive, which provided hacking tools and support to a network of affiliates who targeted more than 1,500 victims in over 80 countries, from hospitals to the government of Costa Rica. U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland says the group received over $100 million in extortion payments. Last summer, FBI agents from the Tampa Division, with the support of prosecutors in the Criminal Division's Computer Crime and Intellectual Property Section and the Middle District of Florida, infiltrated the Hive Network and began disrupting a Hive's attempts to dis- extort victims. Today, the Justice Department, along with Europol, seized Hive's digital infrastructure, shutting down the group, while investigations into those involved continues. Stocks finished higher on Wall Street today. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Governor Maura Healey says she plans to appoint a new MBTA general manager in a matter of weeks, not months. Her comments today come as T-Riders struggle with delays, reduced service levels, and frequent weekend shutdowns on part of the orange, green, and red lines. This morning in Newton, Healy told statewide business leaders that hiring a new GM is a top priority, so, quote, these things stop happening. The previous GM, Steve Poftak, stepped down earlier this month at the end of Governor Charlie Baker's term. The head of the Massachusetts Medical Society wants doctors to take on a larger role to prevent gun violence. The organization that represents physicians and medical students has just formed the Firearm Safety and Gun Violence Prevention Advisory Group. WBR's Fausto Menard has more. The Medical Society cites statistics that show an average of 241 people in Massachusetts are killed and more than 400 others are injured by guns every year. Society President Dr. Ted Kalianos calls it a public health issue that doctors are uniquely qualified to address. Physicians deal with the results of gun violence every day. And to that end, that is most certainly in our lane. Kalianos wants the advisory group to develop standardized questions that doctors can ask their patients. You know, are the guns safely locked away? Are there children in the home? Are there people in the home that might be more susceptible to gun injury? Caliano says he also expects the group to develop advocacy initiatives around gun safety. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Fausto Menard.
Delays are easing after a crash that caused significant delays on Interstate 93 in Dorchester earlier today. Several cars and a tractor-trailer collided near the Savin Hill exit before 1 o'clock. The highway has fully reopened, but drivers are seeing lingering delays of about 10 minutes in that part of 93 in Dorchester. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Museum of Science, featuring Arctic Adventure, an immersive Arctic world exploration with technology as your guide. Tickets at mos.org. 43 degrees now in the Boston area. Some of the clouds from today should break up a bit tonight. Strong winds around, lows about 29. Tomorrow, lots of sunshine, about 40 degrees. More sun on Saturday should reach the mid-40s. And then the upper 40s on Sunday, but sunshine's taking the day off. Clouds move in. Should be a dry weekend, except for the chance of a shower on Sunday. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Eric and Wendy Schmidt through the Schmidt Family Foundation, working together to create a just world where all people have access to renewable energy, clean air and water, and healthy food. On the web at theschmidt.org. From the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. And from the Annie E. Casey Foundation. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Prosecutors in Memphis today charged five former police officers with murder in the beating death of black motorist Tyree Nichols. The recordings of the beating are described as especially horrific and lacking humanity. Those videos are set to be released publicly tomorrow. The five former officers, all of whom are black, turned themselves in and were jailed. They could all bond out. Reporter Katie Reardon of member station WKNO in Memphis is following the story. Katie, first, what did prosecutors say today about these indictments? Yeah, so the Shelby County District Attorney Steve Mulroy gave a brief statement to the press. Um, He said that a grand jury indicted all five of the former officers on the same charges earlier today. They include second-degree murder, aggravated kidnapping, and official misconduct, among others. Uh, Here's District Attorney Mulroy speaking today. While each of the five individuals played a different role in the incident in question, the actions of all of them resulted in the death of Tyree Nichols, and they are all responsible. Katie, tell us about what happened that night of the incident. Yeah, so this all started with a traffic stop on the night of January 7th. Uh, These officers who were part of a special unit stopped Nichols for what they said was reckless driving. And not long after, the DA said there was an altercation. The officers used pepper spray, then Nichols fled on foot. And there was another altercation a little bit later where the DA said the serious injuries happened, referring to the beating. Um, Nichols' family says this all happened within 100 yards of their home. They say he was just trying to get there. Uh, Nichols was taken to a hospital in critical condition, and he died three days later. Let's the DA talk- said, yeah, I was just going to say um, the DA took a moment to reflect on Nichols today. Loved ones have called the 29-year-old a near-perfect son who enjoyed skateboarding and watching sunsets at the park. Uh, he, he was also a dad. Uh, he had a four-year-old boy. Let's talk about what's on those recordings that are set to be released tomorrow. Any sense of what they show? Well, uh, we haven't seen them yet, but authorities, um, the family of Nichols and a few others have, and they describe them as appalling. Uh, And in discussing those recordings today, the Tennessee Bureau of Investigation Director David Rausch simply said this. This shouldn't have happened. I've been policing for more than 30 years. I've devoted my life to this profession. 
and I'm grieved. Frankly, I'm, I'm shocked. I'm sickened by what I saw. It's absolutely appalling. Uh, these recordings, they'll include body cam, dash cam, and other surveillance footage. And authorities say the city of Memphis will now release them to the public sometime tomorrow after 6 p.m. Central. Uh, they've asked for people to be calm, especially in light of these murder charges being brought. Uh, but they are preparing for demonstrations, and they fear some could turn violent. Have the former police officers or their attorneys spoken today? They did. Late today, two of the attorneys representing two of the former officers spoke to the media. They said not to prejudge what happened and to wait for all the evidence to come out and that there's, quote, two sides to every story. The defense team said there was no one there that night that wanted Mr. Nichols to die. Um, Memphis's police chief, police chief, excuse me, also released a video statement last night. She discussed what she called the, quote, horrific circumstances of Nichols' death and that it was not just a professional failing, um, but that the incident was, quote, heinous, reckless, and inhumane. Uh, we should also mention that the funeral for Tyree Nichols is scheduled for next Wednesday. That's Katie Reardon of member station WKNO in Memphis, Tennessee. Thank you. Thank you. Japa, which is Yoruba for to flee or escape. It's become a major talking point in Nigeria. Large numbers of people are fleeing that country in search of a better life abroad. This Japa wave is fueled by the sharp rise in kidnappings, lack of security, and a battered economy. And for the same reasons, many Nigerians who left their country decades ago and plan to return to Nigeria to retire, they're now having second thoughts. Emmanuel Akinwotu reports from Lagos, but first we begin in London. Hello, Ma. It's Emmanuel. Thank you, Ma. This is the story of a woman who left home 40 years ago for a better life. But she didn't plan to stay away forever. How is this called? People come from Nigeria. Susanna Aramore is 66 and lives in a housing estate in South London. When she arrived in 1983 from Lagos, her dream was that one day she would return home to Nigeria and retire there. But now that dream has faded. As we talk, she switches between English and Yoruba and remembers how she spent years struggling to support her three children and save to build a home in Nigeria. She sometimes held three jobs at a time, working throughout the night. Was the struggle worth it? I ask her. Yes, she tells me, leaning forward, because I wanted to return home. Two, three years ago. After several years, she did build her house, but then she decided she couldn't return. There's no security. Some people build their house and finish everything. They can't live there. This is the house Susanna Aramo built. It's in a quiet pocket of a busy district called Yanopaja. There are four bright yellow apartments in a large compound, guarded by high walls, covered in thick strands of lilac-colored flowers. The grounds are large and beautiful, but all the narrow roads surrounding here are battered. And when I speak to people nearby, they're fed up. There's no development. Everything is just bad, poor. 24-year-old Damilola Pupuola is a student and part-time security guard on the street. The power is really bad. We don't use light close to three hours. Three hours a day? Three hours a day. And what about security here? That's zero. Idayat Hassan is the director of the Center for Democracy and Development, 
a think tank in the capital, Abuja. She tells me that fear of insecurity is affecting Nigerians both in and outside the country. It's this fear that is driving people to leave the country and at the same time not to return back. She says stories like Susanna's are not unique. Everybody is selling off their property. In fact, the easiest way to buy cheap property is either to buy from people who are leaving the country or people who have finally decided that this place is no longer livable. Ajibike Ogunowa is selling roasted plantain on the side of the road. When I tell her people like Susanna wish they could return, she's painfully blunt. She should stay where she is, she says. Tell her not to bother coming back. Susanna Aramo sold her house last year and decided she would stay in the UK. When I ask her how it made her feel, she refers to a Yoruba proverb. Oh, more joko soko. You don't have house anymore. You stay in the farm. She feels like she spent the last 40 years working in the UK, like being on a farm, but it's not home. She's happy to be closer to her children and grandchildren, but the decision to stay is still painful. This place is so lonely, my dear, but in Nigeria, you will see people pass by to say hello. This country is so lonely. Emmanuel Akimotu, NPR News, Lagos. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. What would be one of the largest copper and gold mines in the world might never break ground. The EPA is expected to issue its final decision at the end of the month on the Pebble Mine in southwest Alaska. From member station KDLG, Izzy Ross reports. The sun is just starting to rise at 9 a.m. in Igiagic, a village of about 70 people on the Quijack River in the Bristol Bay region. Yupik, Dena'ina, and Alutuk peoples have lived here for thousands of years. Christina Salmon is walking to her job at the village council. The sunlight is coming back, and I couldn't be happier. <laughs> Salmon has spent years fighting the development of the Pebble Mine, which would be built about 40 miles from the village. Last month, she got the news she was hoping for. The EPA recommended a ban on mining activities at the site, not just those described in a permit application that Pebble Company is pursuing, but any similar mining there. If the EPA finalizes that decision at the end of the month, it would effectively kill the mine. I'm almost on the edge of being able to relax again. Um, we've just wasted so much of our life Fighting pebble. The EPA is exercising a rarely used authority under the Clean Water Act, commonly called its veto authority. Agency officials declined to be interviewed for this story, but in a statement said the mine could harm fish spawning and breeding areas, and that this action would protect the commercial and sport fisheries and a traditional way of life based on wild salmon. The U.S. Army Corps of Engineers denied Pebble's mining permit two years ago, but the company appealed that decision. 
Pebble spokesperson Mike Heatwall says the EPA is not following normal protocol by using this Clean Water Act authority before the appeal has even been processed. We continue to say that it is largely unlawful and unprecedented what the EPA is attempting to do regarding this project. And Heatwall says the company may sue. But the EPA's use of this authority reflects its serious concerns about the mine's impact on the region, says Joel Reynolds with the Natural Resources Defense Council. It's about as much opposition as one will ever see to a development project anywhere, really, but in particular in a development-friendly state like Alaska. Many who want the mine to come understand the opposition to it. But they say the economic future of the region is at stake. I think the EPA should butt out, quite frankly, and let the process continue. George Hornberger runs the electrical utility in New Halen, one of the communities closest to the proposed mine site. If it's not that, then tell me your plan for this area. What is your plan to bring economy into this area and give people a reason to stay here? We saw a really positive change um, when our people were working. Joanne Wassily is the New Halen Tribal Council Administrator. Wassily believes Pebble can develop the mine safely. And she says earlier, when Pebble was exploring the site to see if a mine was viable, the company provided people with good-paying jobs. And then it seems like as soon as they quit working, we started noticing a lot more Kind of like depression, no jobs, more alcohol and drug-related activities happening. Wassily says the prospect of good jobs would give people the ability to stay in the place they love. For NPR News, I'm Izzy Ross in New Halen, Alaska. And you're listening to All Things Considered. This is 90.9 WBUR. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu says she wants to improve neighborhoods. Tomorrow morning on WBUR, we take a walking tour of Mattapan to review some early plans. Start your day right here at 90.9 WBUR. Celtics return home to the Garden tonight to host the New York Knicks. The Celtics hope to add to their seven-game home win streak, 7.30 start time. The Bruins are on the road. They take on the Tampa Bay Lightning. Face-off time is at 7 o'clock. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Montgomery Carroll Group, guiding buyers and sellers in Brookline and Newton. More about Matt Montgomery, Lauren Carroll, and their team at mcgroupcompass.com. We're saying a fond farewell today to our longtime broadcast technician, Mike Garth. You may not know his name, but you hear his craftsmanship about every day on WBUR. He mixes the stories that are broadcast, making sure the audio levels are even, the narrator's peas don't pop, and the music fades in and out at exactly the right time. He's been doing this since he was a work-study student back in the 90s and was hired right after graduation. Now he's heading out to use his superior audio talents elsewhere. We will miss his gentle nature, unshakable work ethic, and his smile that makes you happy just to be around him. Thanks for it all, Mike. Good luck. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Merrimack Repertory Theater with Letters from Home, a true story exploring the intergenerational legacy of a Cambodian family. Through February 5th, MRT.org. Over 40 million adults in America suffer from an anxiety disorder. But anxiety also has an evolutionary purpose. Because it's preparing us to handle this uncertain future where something bad or good could happen, 
anxiety primes us to focus more, to persist, to innovate, you know, to seek support, to be proactive. That's On Point tonight at 7 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Today, advisors to the Food and Drug Administration overwhelmingly endorsed a proposal to make big changes in the nation's strategy for vaccinating people against COVID-19. NPR health correspondent Rob Stein is here. Hey, Rob. Hey there. Okay, so big changes. What is the new strategy? The idea is to make vaccination against COVID much simpler and less confusing and much more like the annual flu shots. You know, right now, getting vaccinated against COVID means getting two shots of the original vaccine spaced out weeks apart, and then one of the new bivalent Omicron boosters at least two months later. Mm-hmm. Under the new game plan, most people just get one shot every fall with a new vaccine that's probably been rejiggered to try to match whatever variant is most likely to be spreading that winter. No need to keep track of how many shots have they already gotten or when, just like the flu shots. And you know, Mary Louise, this is based on two things. The first is that COVID's going to keep making lots of people sick for years to come, and so an effective vaccine vaccination strategy is crucial to protect people. The second is that most people have so much immunity at this point from having gotten vaccinated and boosted and infected that one shot once a year should be enough moving forward. Here's how Dr. Peter Marks from the FDA put it at the start of a day-long meeting of the agency's outside advisors today. We're now in a reasonable place to reflect on the development of the COVID-19 vaccines to date to see if we can simplify the approach to vaccination in order to facilitate the process of optimally vaccinating and protecting the entire population moving forward. And hopefully entice more people to get vaccinated. You know, only about 15% of eligible people have gotten one of the new boosters, which is a big reason why hundreds of people are still dying from COVID every day. Well, and simpler, less confusing. That all sounds good. Tell me more about what exactly happened today. The FDA advisors reviewed the latest data about how well the current vaccines work, how safe they are, and how updating vaccines to target Omicron has worked out. Scientists from the FDA and the CDC and the vaccine companies presented data that the vaccines are safe and are doing a good job of preventing people from getting really sick, and that reformulating the vaccines to target Omicron provided added protection. And in the end, the advisors voted unanimously to simplify the vaccines. Here's Dr. Ofer Levy from the Harvard medical school. As we've turned the corner from a pandemic phase to an endemic phase, today's vote marks a big practical win for the American people. This is going to really simplify things, benefit public health. But, you know, there are still lots of questions about this, about whether continuously updating the vaccines makes sense, given how fast the virus is still evolving, about how the va- about how the vaccines should be updated exactly, about how best to evaluate the shots, and about how often people really need more shots and who really needs them. Here's Dr. Cody Meisner from the Dartmouth-Hitchcock Medical Center. We may or may not need annual vaccination. I, it's just... Awfully early, it seems to me, in this process to answer that question. We need to focus instead on developing next-generation vaccinations that work better and on getting more people vaccinated. Briefly, Rob, next steps? The FDA advisors will meet again in the spring to help pick which strain or strains of the vaccine should target should target the vaccines next fall. All right. All right. Well, we will leave it there for now. Uh, that is NPR Health Correspondent Rob Stein. Thank you. Sure thing.
A new BBC documentary about India's prime minister has reignited debate about press freedoms in India. The film questions Narendra Modi's role in the deadly anti-Muslim riots in 2002. That mob violence killed roughly a thousand people, most of them Muslim. The documentary is called India, the Modi Question. YouTube and Twitter have complied with government requests to censor clips of the documentary, and university officials have shut down public screenings. Sadanand Dume is a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. Welcome back to All Things Considered. Thank you. Good to be back. People have criticized Modi for his involvement in these riots for two decades. And so why has this new documentary invited so much controversy? Well, you know, the Gujarat riots of 2002 are a stain on Modi's political career that he's never quite been able to wash off. And the reason they're controversial is that, first of all, they're on the BBC, which has a certain amount of credibility and heft in India. Um, And secondly, this is something that, as a political issue, uh, Mr. Modi thought he had buried, at least in India, And so by bringing it up again, raising questions about what happened in 2002, it's really like, you know, itching an old scab. And and that's Mm -hmm. why it's become so controversial. Is the government's criticism of the documentary centered on the way it characterizes the riots or what the documentary has to say about Modi's leadership today? Well, you know, the government sort of has had, I I would say, a fairly petty and childish response. They've accused the BBC of neo-colonialism and they've really questioned the right of the BBC to make the uh, program. But I think underlying this is a fear that Mr. Modi's international image, which he has worked very hard to buff, is going to be tarred at a moment when India is stepping up to lead the G20, the group of 20 largest economies in the world. So I think that uh, this documentary coming against that backdrop uh, is jarring and the government finds it embarrassing, which is why they have resorted to blocking it on social media. Student activists have kept screening the documentary across the country in protest of the censorship. How is the rest of India responding? It's very much a polarized country at this moment. And as you would imagine, in a polarized country, the responses really break down largely on political lines. Uh, Many of Mr. Modi's supporters view this as a India standing up for itself and speaking back to the former colonial master. And many other people, particularly people who are affiliated with the opposition, think it's absolutely appalling that the government has blocked the documentary and is making efforts to prevent Indians from viewing it. Okay, but are more people actually watching it because it's been censored? For sure. I mean, I mean, evid- we're talking about it. Uh, evidently, Mr. Modi and his advisors had not heard of the Streisand effect. But <laughs> right. there's no question that a lot more people are talking about it and watching it. And that if they'd just done nothing, it's quite possible that people would have just yawned in India. Is it pretty typical of American tech companies to agree to censor clips of the documentary when the Indian government asks? Unfortunately, Yes. You know, many of these companies are locked out of China, so they view India as potentially the next big market, even though in real terms, if you look at the sort of dollars that come out of India, the numbers are quite small. But they look at India as potentially a large market, and the government of India is able to use this to arm twist American tech companies, and unfortunately, they have not shown too much spine. You know, people often call India the world's largest democracy. What does this episode tell us about the country under Modi? Well, I think India is the world's largest democracy if you look at democracy in narrow terms, in terms of voting. More than 600 million people voted in the last Indian general election in 2019. But if you look at democracy in terms of the protection of individual rights, and if you look at things like freedom of speech and freedom of the press, 
then the situation in India does not look that great. I mean, what kind of democracy stops people from watching a documentary? I think there's no way around that. Sidanand Dume is a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. Thank you for speaking with us. Thank you. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Orion with Women Talking, screenplay by and directed by Sarah Pauly. Starring Rooney Mara, Claire Foy, Jesse Buckley, Judith Ivey, with Ben Wishaw and Francis McDormand. Now only in theaters. And from the law firm Cooley LLP, with offices in the U.S., Europe, and Asia, Cooley advises entrepreneurs, investors, financial institutions, and established companies around the world, where innovation meets the law. And from Workday, committed to helping organizations adapt to change, using real-time data, to uncover insights, stay decision-ready, and prepare for whatever's next. The finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. This is NPR. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Temperatures should fall to about 29 overnight tonight. Tomorrow, sunshine through the day. Highs up around 40. Then for Saturday, sunshine once again rising to the mid-40s. Sunday could be even milder, maybe reaching 50 degrees or thereabouts, but it should be a lot grayer, mainly cloudy skies for the second half of the weekend. This is 90.9 WBUR, 43 degrees now in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by The Huntington. The Art of Burning, a comedy exploring the love, rage, and responsibility that go with marriage and parenting in America. Now through February 12th, HuntingtonTheater.org. I'm education reporter Carrie Young, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUH-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The U.S. economy grew at a healthy pace in the final months of last year, up 2.9 percent. But forecasters expect slower growth this year as the Federal Reserve continues to clamp down on inflation. Today is Thursday, January 26th, and this is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good evening, I'm Lisa Mullins. The Biden administration is proposing that the U.S. Census and federal surveys change how Latinos are asked about their race and ethnicity and add a checkbox for Middle Eastern or North African. Tesla recently cut the price of its cars around the world. The move is catching the eye of potential buyers and it's angering many current owners. It's sort of a, you know, a tale as old as time. You want market share, you're just gonna increase your production, drop the prices. And German and American tanks are headed to Ukraine in the coming days. We'll hear why tanks are so valued on the front lines of war. It's 6.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. President Biden says his primary objective this year is to implement all the legislation Congress passed in his first two years in office. As NPR's Tamara Keith reports, Biden also announced plans to create what he's calling the Invest in America cabinet. Biden says he's bringing together half a dozen cabinet secretaries and two top advisors, Mitch Landrieu and John Podesta, and charging them with making sure the infrastructure, computer chip and climate investment programs created by Congress are rolled out effectively. And they're going to come up with a plan how we implement all that we've done. It's one thing to pass it all. 
Now we have to make sure we're ever on it every single day. Not a joke. Implement it so people can see what we've delivered. Give it to them directly. He said he hopes these programs will spur investment and create jobs in parts of America that have been passed over by earlier economic booms. Tamara Keith, NPR News, the White House. Congressional Democrats are calling on the Biden administration to reconsider tougher enforcement measures at the southern border. NPR's Joel Rose reports more than 70 lawmakers signed a letter to the White House today. Democrats who signed on to the letter want the administration to drop plans for sharp new limits on asylum for migrants who cross the border illegally. And they're calling on the administration to stop expelling migrants under the pandemic border restrictions known as Title 42. New Jersey Senator Cory Booker spoke outside the Capitol. We are seeing the extension of Title 42 is putting people in danger facing persecution and violence. Earlier this month, the Biden administration expanded the use of Title 42, while also introducing a new legal pathway for up to 30,000 migrants per month from Cuba, Haiti, Nicaragua, and Venezuela. Immigration authorities say those measures have led to a steep decline in the number of migrants crossing the border illegally. Joel Rose, NPR News. Economic growth in the United States slowed in the last quarter of 2022. That's according to new data from the Commerce Department. But as NPR's David Gurra reports, gross domestic product grew at 2.9 percent, a faster pace than Wall Street expected. The broadest measure of economic growth was down only slightly less than in the previous quarter, ending 2022 on a high note. Earlier last year, the economy contracted. Recent data have shown a decline in retail sales, a sign consumers are scaling back their spending, and many economists are forecasting a recession later this year. The Federal Reserve is scheduled to meet next Tuesday, and the latest GDP numbers will be among the economic data they'll consider before making a decision on raising interest rates. Wall Street expects another hike, this time of a quarter point. David Gura, NPR News, New York. At the close on Wall Street, the Dow was up 205 points. This is NPR. You're listening to 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. The MBTA's orange line will shut down between Ruggles and North Station in the next two weekends because of demolition of the government center garage. That shutdown will also allow the T to perform track work between Ruggles and Back Bay. The same stretch of orange line will be shut down the weekend of February 18th. Portions of the red and green lines will also be closed on some weekends in February for repair work and to, again, accommodate demolition work at the Government Center Garage. A program that lets students take free college courses in high school is expanding in Boston. As WBR's Carrie Young reports, beginning this fall, Fenway High School will let students continue their college work for an extra year. Typically, the early college program at Fenway allows students to take a mix of high school courses and college classes at UMass Boston through their senior year. The pilot program adds a year 13. City leaders say the goal is to make higher education more affordable. Jeff Walker, the Fenway High School principal, also hopes the extra student support from the program will improve college completion rates. The theory in action is to kind of blur the lines between high school and college so that they can start to experience university in a supportive setting. District leaders hope to enroll at least a dozen students this year and expand it to other schools if it's successful. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Carrie Young. If it's a sport, there's a good chance you'll be able to bet on it in Massachusetts next week, even, in fact, if it's not a sport. Massachusetts Gaming Commission this week approved sports wagering on a list of varied types of competitions. They include rugby, professional darts, and competitive eating. 
Gamblers will also be allowed to place bets on things such as the Academy Awards and the Super Bowl MVP. Chess, cornhole, and Olympic events whose results are based on judging, such as gymnastics and diving, fail to make the cut, though. In-person betting in Massachusetts begins at 10 o'clock Tuesday morning. And sidewalk poetry will soon return to Cambridge. As part of an annual program, the city is working to find community members to decide which poems submitted by Cambridge residents will end up on the concrete beneath your feet. Lillian, Lillian Sue is with the city's arts agency, Cambridge Arts. She says committee members will read more than 200 poetry submissions, then come together for a discussion. That's also a really wonderful part of it because the conversation we hear among the selection committee during that session is very rich and it's impressive how much dedication and care they bring to that. Sue says she hopes to find people from different ages and backgrounds to represent the committee community on that committee. Cambridge residents who are interested in submitting poetry or serving on the selection committee can learn more on the Cambridge City website by searching Sidewalk Poetry. In the forecast tonight, windy and cold in the upper 20s. Tomorrow, a full day of sunshine, the first in a while, with highs just about 40 degrees. Saturday, also sunny, highs in the mid-40s. On Sunday, clouds move on back in, maybe a sprinkle in the afternoon, warming to about 48 degrees. 43 degrees now in Boston at 6.07. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Heather Sturt Haga and Paul G. Haga, supporting African Wildlife Foundation, working to ensure the future of Africa's wildlife and wild lands. Learn more at awf.org. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Here is the good news from the latest report card on the U.S. economy. It ended last year in better shape than many people expected, and that is largely because people kept spending money in spite of rising prices. But the not-so-good news is this. Forecasters say that resilience is not likely to last. Inflation is starting to take a toll on people's spending habits. And the Federal Reserve's efforts to fight inflation are putting a big dent in the housing market. NPR's Scott Horsley is here to explain all. Hey, Scott. Hi, Mary Louise. Start with what we know for sure. What does the new GDP report tell us about the economic growth that already happened in the final three months of 2022? Yeah, the economy grew at an annual pace of 2.9% in the fourth quarter. That is down a little bit from the previous three months, but it's still pretty good. In fact, it's well above the average growth rate we saw during the decade-long expansion leading up to the pandemic. It's also a big improvement from the first half of last year, when you might remember the economy actually shrank. Yeah. Uh, Mark Zandi, who's the chief economist at Moody's Analytics, says after that tough start to 2022, the economy found its footing in the second half of the year. And we actually ended the year with an economy about 1% larger than it was 12 months earlier. Weak in the grand scheme of things, but pretty darn good in the context of a pretty tough year with the Russian invasion of Ukraine spiking energy prices, record gasoline prices in the middle of the year, and of course the Fed jacking up interest rates very aggressively. The Federal Reserve has raised interest rates seven times in the last 10 months as it tries to curb inflation. And that effort is working. Inflation is coming down. But of course, those higher borrowing costs are also likely to produce slower economic growth this coming year. And are we already seeing signs of that? You can definitely see it in the housing market. Home sales and new home construction have dropped off sharply as a result of higher mortgage rates. Uh, Housing was a big drag on GDP at the end of last year. Consumer spending, which is the biggest driver of the economy, has held up relatively well. But you are starting to see some cracks there as well. You know, for a while, people were able to shrug off higher prices and maintain their spending by dipping into savings or leaning more heavily on their credit cards. 
But you start to see a real slowdown at the end of last year. Uh, Nikki Moore works for an insurance company in Florida. She and her husband have pretty good incomes. But she says once they pay their basic bills every month, there's just less money left over for little luxuries. Our electric bill, holy Moses, things like that we have to budget for, whereas before, I was like, okay, I paid the electric bill and we have some money left over. I take the kids to the movies or we go to McDonald's or something like that. But I'm like, yeah, that money's being eaten up just for the basic needs. As a result, people are starting to spend a little less freely. Consumer spending was pretty robust in October, but it started to lose steam in November and December. Okay, so crystal ball moment. What does all that tell us about what we may be in store for this year? We are likely to see a further slowdown in growth. A lot of forecasters worry the economy could slip into recession. Zandi thinks we will narrowly avoid that, and the economy will keep growing just very slowly. Uh, some would call that a soft landing, although Zandi doesn't like that phrase. This isn't going to be soft. You know, We may land without a recession. I think that's more than likely, but it's going to feel very, very uncomfortable. Not a recession. We're not going backwards, but we're not going anywhere fast. Whether we slide into recession or not, 2023 looks like a challenging year for the economy. On the plus side, we do have a very strong job market. Unemployment's at a half-century low, so we'll see how long that lasts. Thank you, Scott. You're welcome. And Pierre Scott Horsley. The Biden administration is proposing two major changes to the 2030 census. If approved, these changes could transform how Latinos and people of Middle Eastern or North African descent are counted in statistics across the U.S., NPR's Hansi Wong is here to explain. Hey, Hansi. Hey, Ari. Seems like just yesterday we were talking about the 2020 census. What are these proposed changes for 2030? We are talking about two new checkboxes on census forms as well as other federal surveys, one for Middle Eastern or North African and another box for Hispanic or Latino. And they would appear alongside boxes for other categories like American Indian or Alaska Native, Asian, Black, Pacific Islander, and White. And you would still be able to check off as many boxes as you identify with. But what would be new is that all of those boxes would be under a new kind of question. If you remember the 2020 form, what that looked like, there were two separate questions about race and ethnicity, these new checkboxes would be under a combined question about a person's race or ethnicity. Explain the impact of that. What kind of a difference could it make in how Latinos and people of Middle Eastern or North African descent are counted in this country? Well, many Latinos have had a hard time answering census and federal survey questions about their race that don't include a checkbox for Hispanic or Latino. That's because the federal government recognizes Latino as ethnicity that can be of any race. But research by the Census Bureau shows that asking about race or ethnicity in one combined question on forms, that could help Latinos more accurately report their identities. And as for adding a Middle Eastern or North African checkbox, that's been uh, there's been a decades long campaign for for a checkbox like that by advocates for Arab Americans and other MENA groups, because right now the U.S. government officially categorizes people with origins in places like Lebanon, Iran and Egypt as white. And research has shown a lot of people with MENA origins in the U.S. don't see themselves as white. You know, I talked to Maya Berry, executive director of the Arab American Institute and one of the leading advocates for a MENA checkbox. And I asked why having a checkbox on a federal survey or a census form is such a big deal. We will, for the first time ever, be able to get to a place of understanding where our community is better meet its needs. And we're talking about things from, you know, basic health care needs, health research on the community, English as a second language program, where our schools go in, political representation. It's extraordinary how much the decennial census and the data collected from it impacts individual lives. 
Okay, so clearly a lot at stake here. Hansi, are there also broader implications that could come along with these changes? We know these proposals are all part of potential revisions to federal data standards that have not been updated since 1997. That's more than a quarter century ago. And the way the country thinks about the social constructs that are race and ethnicity have certainly changed since then. So any approved changes to those standards could really reset the national conversation about race. And what are the next steps for these proposals to become reality? Right now, these are, again, just early proposals from a group of career civil servants, and the White House Office of Management and Budget is asking for feedback from members of the public to send in that feedback by mid-April, they say, and a final decision on these proposals by OMB, Office of Management and Budget, is expected by summer 2024. NPR's Hansi Lo Wong. Thanks a lot. You're welcome, Ari. Imagine you buy the car of your dreams. And then somebody else buys it for 20% less. How would you feel? Well, you might feel like many Tesla buyers right now. Though, as NPR's Camila Dominoski reports, what Tesla loses from frustrated owners is outweighed by what it stands to gain from lowered prices. When Brian Levine, a physician in Tucson, ordered a Tesla Model Y in August, he knew it was going to cost him 70 grand. That's expensive, but the price was the price, right? What can you do? A carton of eggs is $7, and I don't know, yeah, that feels pretty expensive, but what are you going to do? Still got to make an omelet. It turns out there was something Levine could have done to get a much cheaper Model Y. He could have waited. Unlike most automakers, Tesla sets prices directly on its website, and it changes them whenever it wants. Earlier this month, the price of a new Model Y dropped by $13,000. The, you know, reptilian brain um, part of, wow, that stinks. This just would have been a much better purchase, you know, had I waited a couple months. He's trying to be philosophical about it, and doing better than I would. You know, that, that's fine. Not everyone's going to get every amazing deal or whatever. Still, he's peeved that his car lost so much value overnight. But someone in the family was happy. After his dad heard about the price cuts, he ordered a Model 3. And of course, that's the point of cutting prices. It drives up sales. Tesla CEO Elon Musk talked to investors about the price cuts this week. Just a vast number of people that want to buy a Tesla car, but can't afford it. And, and so these price changes really make a difference um, for the average consumer. It's true that whether buyers are looking to slow climate change or save on gas money, sky-high prices can give them pause. But there's another reason for Tesla to cut prices. Actually, more like half a dozen reasons. One from Volkswagen, one from Ford, one from Kia, one from Hyundai, one from Chevy. I love this place. That is really nice. At the DC Auto Show last week, Xavion Butler and Frank Smart agreed electric vehicles are the future and that prices need to come down. They take it over. That's for sure. Get on board or get left behind. (laughs) Everybody's got to be able to afford them too, so they got to make them more affordable. But it wasn't a Tesla they were looking at. It was the upcoming Chevy Blazer electric vehicle. And when I mentioned Tesla's price cuts, Butler pointed to that shiny red SUV in front of us. Tesla did just cut its prices. Yeah, because everybody else came out. They have no choice. If you're the only person in the game, you make the price. And Tesla was the only one pretty much in the game. Not anymore. Tesla is still at the top of the EV game by a long shot, but it knows it has to work harder to maintain its advantage. And one big question now is whether all these other companies will cut their prices too. After all, that's how this normally goes. 
Now, Tesla has never been much for normal. All-electric startup with no dealerships, no ads, none of that is typical for the auto industry. But starting a price war? That's actually very normal. It's sort of a, you know, a tale as old as time. You want market share, you're just going to increase your production, drop the prices. That's Jessica Caldwell from the auto site Edmunds. As soon as Tesla announced the price cut, the percentage of shoppers who researched Tesla instead of other brands on Edmunds more than doubled. Price cuts work. That's why discounts happen. It's just another step on the road for Tesla becoming a mainstream automaker and dealing with mainstream automaker problems. Tesla has transformed the auto industry, but in the process, maybe it's starting to look a little more like a normal automaker. Camila Dominoski, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up, remembering one of the creators of Sesame Street in about six minutes on WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Zevin Asset Management, committed to impact investing and socially responsible portfolios for 25 years. Learn how to invest sustainably at Zevin.com. The Dow rose six-tenths of a percent today to close at 33,949. S&P gained more than one percent to finish at 4060. The Nasdaq picked up one and three-quarters percent as Tesla stock popped to finish at 11,512. A Boston wholesale bakery has been cited for violating workers' rights. Attorney General Andrea Campbell says Dutch-made bakery and staffing firms that provided employees to it failed to pay minimum wage and overtime to dozens of workers. The citations call for the companies to pay more than $400,000 in restitution and fines. We've reached out to Dutch Made Bakery for comment. It's 620. Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org cars. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge Naturals, a local source for health and wellness since 1974, in Cambridge, Brighton, and at cambridgenaturals.com. Temperature should fall to about 29 degrees overnight tonight with partly cloudy skies. Tomorrow, mainly sunny through the day. Highs up around 40. Nice switch for a change. Then for Saturday, sunshine again, rising to the mid-40s. Could be even milder on Sunday, almost reaching 50 degrees. Should be a lot more overcast, though. Mainly cloudy skies for the second half of the weekend. Could have a shower as well. This is 90.9 WBUR. The time is 621. WBUR supporters include Road Scholar creating educational travel adventures for adults around the world. Learn more at roadscholar.org slash learning. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. With word this week that German and American tanks are headed to Ukraine, we wanted to take a moment to consider the role that tanks have played on the battlefields of Europe, the extent to which they have or have not been a game changer. Go back to World War I. That is when tanks first appeared. The idea was that an armored all-terrain vehicle could break the stalemate of trench warfare. While militaries have been trying to improve on tanks' design and effectiveness ever since. Historian Antony Bivor has written about the tank and personally knows his way around one from his time as an officer in the British Army. Welcome. 
Thank you very much. So paint us a picture of the situation that the first early tanks were designed for back in the First World War. The massacre of soldiers pouring out of trenches and going across no man's land was so horrific that everybody was trying to think of an alternative. And so that's where the idea of an armoured tank emerged. And it was because it looked almost like a water tank, but bolted together as a project. And Churchill, um, working then in the government, put as much pressure as he could to help develop it. And the British uh, were probably just about the first, really, to get the tank going. And uh, there they had these monsters with... uh, the tracks on the outside, uh, rather than sheltered under armour or anything like that. And this was uh, when, 1916, that they first That's right. Okay. Yes, yes, indeed. Ah. All right. I'm going to fast forward you over a lot of twists and turns in the development right up to World War II. It was the Brits who first developed tanks, but by World War II, it was Germany that had leapt ahead. Is that right, in terms of integrating tanks in their combat plans? Uh, It was, in fact, the Soviet Union. I mean, the um, Stalin went in for a massive uh, program. And, of course, actually, the Red Army had the largest tank force in the world. But they were uh, not nearly as well-trained as the German tank crews. And, in fact, um, the German tanks were probably inferior both to the British and the French tanks in 1940. And yet, because of speed and above all, because of the determination to break through, not worry about the flanks and just keep going, they were far more devastating in their tactics. I am curious, since you just told me it was Russia that was at the front of the pack in terms of what they were able to do with the tank in the Second World War. What happened? Because it, it cannot be said that their tank usage in the current conflict in Ukraine has been impressive. Uh, It has been um, very unimpressive and quite astonishing in the way that they have repeated the mistakes of the Second World War, all of their worst mistakes, uh, and also sending them straight down a road uh, where you could block off by shooting up one or two of them. You could then basically stop the whole column and then pick them off one by one. The Ukrainians um, did that and using those... uh, uh, British N-law uh, anti-tank uh, weapons uh, very effectively, absolutely massacred them. So Ukraine, of course, already has tanks in this fight. What do you expect the impact of this new of the new ones of the American Abrams and the German Leopards to be in the war in Ukraine? Well, the, uh, the the whole advantage of the leopard is that so many other countries in Europe have got the leopard and therefore uh, there is less problem over spare parts, ammunition resupply and all the rest of it. Uh, and of course, it's a very, very good tank. But I mean, frankly, there isn't the number. So they need more quantity for this to be a game changer. They need more quantity. Basically, they're talking about 300. They might get 200 with, uh, with luck, which would be sort of roughly the equivalent of a proper armoured division. What about timing? Uh, it, there's, there are many questions about how long it's going to take for these tanks to actually get there. Well, the trouble is many of them are, and especially the ones coming from Germany, um, have basically been sort of sitting, sitting around, in many cases, waiting for proper repairs. And this is really one of the problems. Europe uh, especially has been, I'm afraid, sheltering under the American umbrella and has simply allowed its military situation uh, to deteriorate uh, drastically over the years. So if I'm hearing you correctly, you do not sound overwhelmingly convinced that in the current quantity and on the current timeline that the announcements of the influx of tanks this week is going to be a game changer in Ukraine. 
It could be. It all depends on timing. And even a certain number will certainly help because uh, what they're expecting and why Zelensky is so desperate to have the tanks is they know perfectly well that Putin is going to launch a uh, major spring offensive as soon as the ground dries. And uh, for that, they need to be ready. But there is a fundamental paradox here. And this comes back to the beginning of the war when the killing, the destruction of all of the Russian tanks uh, as they advanced on Kiev uh, right at the beginning uh, made everybody, every military commentator at the time uh, say, right, well, this proves that, you know, the era of the tank is over. But uh, we are seeing, as I say, uh, should we say a slight uh, U-turn, if you like, in attitudes to the tank in warfare. Historian Antony Bivor. He is the author, among other books, of Russia, Revolution and Civil War, 1917 to 1921. Sir Antony, thank you. Thanks very much. Lloyd Morissette died earlier this week at the age of 93. Whether or not you recognize his name, you'll almost certainly recognize the television program he helped create. NPR's Corey Turner has this remembrance of the man behind Sesame Street. One morning in the mid-1960s, Lloyd Morissette found his young daughter Sarah sitting in front of the television. She was waiting for her show to come on, just watching the TV station identification signal. Morissette had trained as an educator and a psychologist, and he wondered, if TV is that riveting, could it possibly be used for good to educate young children? In a 2019 interview with the public radio program On Point, Morissette said that question was on his mind. Because too many children entered school three months behind and by third grade were a year behind. Especially low-income children and children of color who often didn't have access to high-quality preschool or even kindergarten. Morissette wondered, could TV teach? In 1966, he found himself at a dinner party and asked that same question of a TV producer there named Joan Gans Cooney. Intrigued, she came up with a proposal for a show. And in 1968, they co-founded what would become known as Sesame Workshop. The following year, in November of 1969, Sesame Street premiered with Kermit, Big Bird, Bert, and Ernie. Hey, Bert, you ought to take a bath. It would cheer you up. Then you wouldn't be such a grouch. I don't need cheering up. I, I, I can tell you don't. Uh, but everybody in the world ought to take a bath. Then they'd be happy and, hey, you out there in TV land, everybody wash. The genius of Sesame Street, as imagined in part by Lloyd Morissette, is that all that joyfulness hides its thoughtfulness. We had a deliberately developed curriculum designed to help children that watch the show succeed in school. The program was designed by educators and child psychologists with a big chunk of its budget devoted not just to Muppets, but to research. Last fall, Sesame Street kicked off its 53rd season. In a statement, co-creator Joan Gans Cooney said without Lloyd Morissette, there would be no Sesame Street. Corey Turner, NPR News. This is NPR News.
And this is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Look for partly cloudy skies overnight tonight. Temperatures just about 29 degrees. For tomorrow, mighty fine sunshine up around 40. And then more sunshine on Saturday in the mid-40s. Sunday, clouds move back in. Temperatures move up to the high 40s. Should be a dry weekend except for the chance of a shower sometime on Sunday. 43 degrees now in the Boston area. This is WBUR. It's 630. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Maplewood Country Day Camp, Southeastern Mass, where since 1965, their instructors have helped over 30,000 children learn to swim. MaplewoodYearRound.com.